With so many pitchers flaming out this season, should we rethink our willingness to draft them in the first round next year? I'll ask Paul Sporer about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 6th. It's show number 38 of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, discussing how the flameouts of top round pitchers this year might affect drafts next year. We'll talk about the outcomes we might see in the aftermath of this year's trades, and he'll have his slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including lots of IL movement in San Francisco and changing pitching roles in Washington and Philadelphia. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including injury news in Los Angeles and New York and a flurry of moves in Texas. We also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Texas right-handed pitcher Joe Barlow. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about the dog days. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's a two-podcast day for your host. We're going to talk some baseball. Well, of course, most listeners know Friday is the usual day for us to release new editions of Baseball HQ Radio, but on this Friday, you can get a double dip of old PD, because I'm also the guest on the Beat the Shift podcast, hosted by Ariel Cohen and Ruvain Guy. We talked about competitive ethics, chances of winning from various places in the standings, categories where we can still make gains, waiver wire players, two-start pitchers. It was a heck of a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed the discussion. Check it out. The Beat the Shift podcast should be available on most podgetters. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition of our podcast, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you so much. How are you, Patrick? I'm doing fine, thanks. I hope everything is well with you as well. You've been writing and podcasting for Fangraphs and Rotographs for how long now? Oh, geez, that's a great question. I think it's going on five years now. Um, I started there when I was still kind of freelancing and working at a few other spots. And then I started full-time. I want to say, I want to say it was 16. So yeah, five years. How did you get hooked up with them? Uh, through Eno, knowing Eno at, at HQ first pitch. Um, we met, we hit it off instantly that first year. We actually, <laughs> uh, there's kind of a funny story. We actually got in a little bit of trouble. We were sharing a little too much on Twitter. We were trying to like, you know, talk about how we were there. I'd been there before. It was his first year and I maybe should have known a little better and guided him that, uh, you know, we can, we can say some things from the event, but you don't want to give the whole game away. The point is for people to come out. So, uh, Ron made an announcement and it was directed at us, even though he said it to the front room there and we, we bonded over getting in trouble. And then, uh, <laughs> we, we learned to behave and, and we've been, we've been damn near best friends ever since. 
He's a terrific guy. He's very a very funny, personable person. Uh, I remember at f- talking of first pitch, I had actually never met him before, and we were out at that the year we were at the hotel that had the fire pit behind the hotel. Mm. Yes, and, I love uh, that place. Yeah, it was really good. And uh, Gene McCaffrey and I and um, Jeff Barton from Score Sheet were the last three people out there, and we were just sitting around and, and talking about baseball and talking about stuff. And Eno wandered by, and he sat down and joined us, and we had some beer and uh Man, he can tell a story. It was really fun and funny to listen to him talk. And Gene McCaffrey's really fun and funny to listen to. So it was a really excellent sort of 90 minutes, two hours. Took us to about three in the morning. and We were all just laughing our asses off. It was terrific. That's a great group. That that really is a a great group there. And I actually remember that. um, I think I was playing poker and then kind of coming and checking in and uh, and, and seeing you all cut up. And like you said, Eno can can hold court with with the best of them. So uh, I can't wait to do it again this year. I'm glad to get back. Obviously, last year was what the year that it was, and there was a lot going yeah. on. And I would never pretend that missing FPAS was like the biggest thing because obviously there was a lot of awful stuff going on. But it was just an added to the laundry list of things that I was like, man, this year sucks for a million reasons, and not having uh, first pitch Arizona is one of them. And just so you know, I've asked Ray Murphy, and he thinks there is a fire pit at the new hotel, and the new hotel Excellent. is right next door to um, to Sloan Park, the uh, replacement for the Cubs' uh, whole camp mm-hmm. operation, and it's a really beautiful area. There's lots to do around there, walking distance. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. I booked in already. I got my flight. Same. I'm, I'm ready to go. It's going to be awesome. Uh, I'm locked and loaded. How many leagues are you playing in this season, Paul? I'm in nine this year. Um, I'm under double digits. I think every other time I've spoken with you on the show, it's it's definitely been double digits. I've purposely been paring down over the years. Um, I still like to do, you know, a good handful. I know some people would hear nine and, you know, their jaw would drop. Uh, you're talking to somebody who used to be up in the upper teens, low 20s at, at my peak. Uh, but, you know, it's just not tenable to properly manage that many teams, in my opinion, um, even as somebody who does this full time. So I think nine is the sweet spot. That's going to be my aim going forward. And I'm, I'm counting the leagues that I have to have maintenance on. Uh, things like a draft champions or even even Raz Slam, which uh, we, I know we're going to talk about. Um, we can count that in too. So if you want to say 10 or 11, but uh, that's only management of a lineup. And in Raz Slam, it's zero management. It's just check-ins because it's best ball. So yeah, as far as fab weekly, you know, got to pay attention to it. That, that would be nine leagues. When you decided to start paring down, Paul, did you did you choose formats and try to concentrate on a single type of format or a narrow range of formats like all roto or all points or all head to head, or did you prune those away, or do you still try to maintain a spread or a balance among the various formats? Because it helps when you're writing about these things to be involved in some of the games that are maybe a little less common, but nonetheless really important to the people who read about them. Exactly. And that's why while I am roto focused on the 12 to 15 team range, I keep my 10 team head to head points league, which is a local league with folks here in Austin. Um, it's very competitive and, um, you know, they, they, they treat me like I'm hot stuff, which I'm not, but they love beating me. You know, oh, Mr. Fangraphs, we beat you, you know, so it's a lot of uh, razzing every time I lose uh, a match in that game or in that league. And then I have the uh, tout head to head as well, which is a different format. But other than that, other than those two, it's uh, and then the best ball Raz Slam, it's exclusively Roto. So the, the vast majority is Roto. That is my favorite. 12 to 15 teams gives you a different experience for both in terms of the waiver pool and player types that are 
that are useful and it allows me to write to those different levels in, in terms of like waiver pickups because not all waiver pickups are the same, right? You pick up a guy in a 15-team league, not necessarily as interested in, in a 12. So I agree with you. I like to keep a little diversity uh, because it does help my writing, but uh, for the most part, I am a roto player. How about uh, single league versus mixed? Is it all mixed or how do you do that? It, for the first time, and I don't know how long, it is all mixed. I used to always have at least one single league, and you know I'm going to try actually next year, uh, and whether it be tout or labor, to see if I can get in a single league. Because otherwise, I don't really have one. The, the NFBC format is always uh, mixed leagues, and that's where most of my leagues are. Um, and I like I like that that format of single league. The depth of it is fun and challenging. So I kind of want to get back into it. But yeah, I think this is the first, last year. I barely count last year, but so we'll say this year is the first year where I really don't have a league like that. You mentioned the Raz Slam League. I'm in that league as well. It's a points-based league. They play a cut-down style where uh, at certain thresholds, if you're in the bottom half of the one particular set of standings, then you're done, or they move you to a kind of a relegatory league. Uh, you're in third place overall the last time I checked. It's a uh, best ball, as you mentioned, so you don't have to make moves. What has gone right for you in that league that you're in such lofty place? Uh, quite quite a bit, if I can if I can be so uh, so braggy about it. Uh, I, I laid a foundation with with hitting early. Uh, Jose Ramirez, Bryce Harper, Kyle Tucker are kind of my foundational hitters that I got early. Brandon Woodruff was my ace, and then uh, Jake Cronenworth, Jared Walsh were guys I was getting everywhere. I got them both. Yuli Gurriel was a late spike. Obviously, he got back on track, and then I actually didn't participate in the first fab, and that wasn't. Uh, that was that was by by plan because it's pretty early and I really wanted some more time to build up and kind of see where everything was. There were some guys I could have definitely replaced, but I kind of wanted to see if, if this strategy would work. And then I ended up getting Eric Haas, Romber Valdez, Luis Garcia, Patrick Wisdom and Brad Miller in the second and, and last um, uh, fab run there. And obviously all of those guys have paid different dividends. Uh, ranging from you know Haas, who's in there virtually all the time, same with Luis Garcia, to Brad Miller, who subs in a week here and there with his excellent uh, runs. You know he's always good for a, a ten day stretch where he's amazing. Then he'll go a little cold, but then he'll get hot again for another two weeks. So that that was a strategy I tried. It could have blown up in my face, but thankfully it has worked quite well. I was wondering about your strategy, your roster approach going into the draft, because I noticed you have Brandon Woodruff anchoring your pitching staff, and he's a good pick. I'm going to guess you got him in the first three or four rounds. But the strength of your rotation seems to be its breadth. You have guys like Joe Musgrove, Aaron Savali, Jamison Tyon, Frankie Montas, Jordan Montgomery, Kyle Hendricks. None of these guys is a top five sort of pick, as I recall it from back in February when we were doing this draft. Was your design as you headed in to hold off on pitching and really load up the hitting at the top and then pick yes. and choose going down uh, as you got down into the later rounds and you sure did well at it. So two part question, I guess that was your strategy, but when you started targeting pitchers, what were you looking for? Uh, well, a lot of those guys are, are just my guys, uh, Musgrove, Montas, Savali, or Kiti. Obviously, Savali and Arkiti have dealt with injury, but they were very good while pitching. Uh, those, those are guys that, you know, folks that listen to my pod or read my writing know that I, I love those guys. So I was kind of targeting favorites of mine that I saw for breakout potential. Um, I also wanted to get some volatility there at the back end because being a best ball, you can take on some guys that are a bit risky. And Fra Frankie Montas is kind of that. 
Um, he's somebody I love and I, I enjoyed his season, but he can be volatile. And, and I've always said about him, the opponent doesn't matter. When he's on, he can thwart the Dodgers and the Astros in a two-step. When he's off, the Pirates and Royals can run him up. It's all about himself and, and whether or not that splider, this splider, I combined the splitter and the slider, whether or not that splitter is working properly. Uh, but I wanted some other guys like that. Uh, Domingo Herman, um, you know, Logan, and then some back end guys. Logan Gilbert was one I took in the 37th round. Obviously, he has panned out to be quite good. I could never have expected that he would be quite that good. But yeah, I thought just attacking it with volume uh, would be the right way to go. I also focused on some guys I thought could go long this year like Woodruff, Kyle Hendricks, uh, and Joe Musgrove. I thought that those guys could get a lot of innings this year. You know, it's hard to find guys that you truly believe can go 180-plus because we don't know how the innings limits are going to work. So I did want to focus on a few guys who should be there for me down the stretch when maybe other folks are having their guys sat down for, um, for health concerns. I appreciate what you said about the volatility of pitchers and there's a way to take advantage of it in this format, I thought, when I was planning my team. And, and the idea is that, yeah, you get a Frankie Montas and every so often he's going to throw, you know, a three-inning, five-run start for you. But it doesn't count because it's best ball and there's mm -hmm. going to be, you, you have enough other pitchers that you can be reasonably certain that a terrible, terrible start by any pitcher is not going to count against you because it's going to be swamped over by some of the other guys you have. And if you have enough pitchers going every week, there's going to be nine of them who put up a decent enough amount of points. And as a result of that thinking, I didn't get a starting pitcher, I think, till the 10th round. And I was actually doing pretty well until a few injuries bailed me in. But uh, did you expressly look at the volatility of pitching as a strategic reason to go the way you did? Yes, I, I, I figure because the way the best ball works, like you said, the duds that some of these guys will hit every once in a while, you'll get stuck with one just because of the, the numbers game. But for the most part, you can avoid them and you're getting the very best of guys. You know, it, it's a scenario where I, I talk a lot about how I, I like game logging, which is going through game logs and kind of seeing how an ERA was made and a guy who can put up seven innings, one run, six innings, two runs, uh, you know, three, four times, and then has a four innings, seven runs outing. I like that guy better than the guy who is consistent, like, five, six innings, three to five runs. Because uh, the, in, in this format, that volatility is wiped away, as we, as we just said. So that's the kind of type, type of guy I was very interested in. I wasn't worried about the ups and downs. I think both New York guys, I got Jordan Montgomery and Domingo Herman carried some of that. In fact, all three, and Jameson Tyon as well. Um, I didn't really mean to get three Yankees. It just kind of happened that way. But all three of them had some volatility to them. But I wasn't as worried about it because I thought it could be covered by the fact that, that some of their worst outings were going to be uh, erased due to best ball. So you're in excellent shape in the Razzland League. How are you doing in your other leagues? Uh, pretty well. Overall, this is shaping up to be a pretty good year. I've been tracking uh, quite well in the, in the NFBC main event. I'm in the top 30. Uh, I'm second in my league, but that really is kind of an hourly change there. The first place and I are one point apart. And whenever, whatever part, part of the night that you look at it, he's in first or I'm in first. So we're, we're, we're trading that spot. And then he's 21st in the overall. I'm 29th. So I'm hoping for a big stretch run here and maybe even make some noise in the overall. Probably going to be pretty difficult to get first. But if I can get in that top 20 there, that would be a payout as well. 
Uh, I have three OCs, the, the Beat Pulse 4, and then uh, two of those, which actually the, the title of those is panning out quite well. People are indeed beating Pulse 4. But then I have another one that I am first in right now, and I've been doing well in that. That's Beat, that's beat Colin Weatherwax, my friend. I decided to get in there and uh, doing pretty well there. I'm third in my TGFBI league. I've bounced around between first and third. And then, um, and then, like you mentioned, Raz Slam. I did a Memorial Day Second Chance League, too. I really liked my team coming out, but it has not done anything of note. So I'm making sure to maintain the team, but uh, I, I don't think we're going to make any sort of moves there. I'm obviously very focused on my main event team. I, I, I really have a chance to win that league and, and maybe even make some overall noise. So uh, I'm, I'm keeping focus there. As far as tout and labor, uh, it's been a mixed bag there. You know, I tell you what, Patrick, if I told you that I got Otani hitter for $4 and Otani pitcher for $1 and tout head to head, you would have said, well, that's a, you know, it's only one player on each side, but it's a pretty good setup. And I said, yeah, I think I could do well. For some reason, I can't get rolling. It's always one step forward, two steps back for me in that league. So I'm not doing all that well there. And then we're middle of the pack, uh, Joe Pizapia and I in labor. How bad has injuries uh, been for you this year? Um, I've I've avoided them pretty well in those leagues where I'm having success, which probably isn't surprising. And then in something like um, the Beat Paul Spore leagues, they've hit pretty hard, as well as that tout head-to-head. You know, uh, Christian Yelich has been poor and then injured. I guess he has COVID. He has Monte Grandal. Um, I've had a lot of pitchers cycle on and off the IL. Dustin May was an early pick. Um, you know, I had an off the field thing with, with clown face Bauer, um, Jared Walsh just recently got hurt. He was somebody, like I said, I got everywhere, so I can't complain with what he's done, but now he's currently hurt, but for the most part, and hopefully I can keep it up. I've stayed pretty healthy in my, in my big NFBC leagues, the main event that one OC I'm doing well in and the, uh, the TGFBI league, a, a few injuries here and there, but nothing that's been catastrophic. I'm still waiting out the Arkady injury in my main event. But uh, if I don't get some good news on him soon, I might have to cut him. Tough choices to have to make sometime. Uh, we were talking about uh, pitcher selection and drafting in the uh, in the uh, cut line league, in the best ball league. But one of the topics that was generating a lot of toutism before the season was the proper place to draft starting pitchers in roto leagues. And more and more experts were writing and saying that you can take a starter in the first round because the risk isn't as pronounced as we might have thought. Then we fast forward to today, and by ADP, the last time I checked, 12 pitchers were taken in the first two rounds. Only five of them, uh, DeGrom, Cole, Bueller, Scherzer, Woodruff, have performed to round value, and DeGrom's value, of course, is kind of teetering, depending on his health. Is it time to re-re-rethink the wisdom of drafting starting pitchers in the first round, second round? I mean, it probably will be addressed this offseason, but I don't know that I'm necessarily going to sharply react to this because um, as people will, will see when they get the forecaster and they do their um, their first round analysis in the front page front pages of the book, the entire first round was laden with volatility. It's not just the pitchers. I mean, you look at the top three picks, um, Acuna, Tatis, DeGrom, all three of them have had issues. Juan Soto was injured earlier this year. Mookie Betts has been hurt. Mike Trout's still on the IL. Um, I don't think Turner's been exclusively injured. I think he, I think just the COVID's really gotten him. But Yelich has been terrible. Bieber's been hurt. Honestly, and, and maybe this, is, this partly explains how I'm doing well in the main event, my first-round pick, Jose Ramirez, is one of those who hasn't really 
uh, hit any sort of trouble with health. But Trevor Story has gotten hurt. Uh, Trevor Bauer, like I said, was not injury, but obviously an off the field situation, just adding to the volatility of the first round. Those were the first, uh, those were most of the first 15 players chosen in the main event by ADP. So I think the whole first round was pretty volatile. But yes, the pitchers will get focused, and I think people will probably peel back. I'm not sure I will, though. I'm, I'm going to assess it, kind of see where we finish up here in these last two months. I think I'm still going to be open to taking a stud in the first couple rounds, though, because um, I think next year will be a lot better in terms of uh, innings as well, and we won't be coming off of a two-month season. So I think part of it is that there was going to be some extra volatility due to the two-month season that we probably just didn't give enough credence to. We thought about it from innings, but I don't know if we gave it as much thought from from injury. And then, of course, there was the uh, the sticky band that we couldn't have couldn't have foreseen either. That some players have definitely seen a marked dip in their performance. For um, next year, we'll have some more clarity on that where it's at. I, I imagine it'll still be banned, but uh, players will be able to kind of adjust themselves from that point. And maybe pitchers will come down a bit. I'm not going to draft a, a first round guy if nobody else is but I'm not going to completely run away from it either if there's still a few that are going in the early rounds there. And I should say that when I looked at it, the average round loss was actually more for hitters than for pitchers in the first couple of rounds because of the injuries to guys like Trout and the terrible performance by Christian Yelich and guys like that. So unfortunately, the rules say we have to take first rounders in draft leagues, and so that forces <laughs> us to make that kind of decision. Although I mentioned a week or two ago, I was talking to someone, and I played for a while in a league where you could actually trade your draft slots before the before the draft and even during it. And uh, so if you had a, if you wanted to trade your second rounder and a 22nd rounder to somebody for two in the middle, you could do that if, if, if you wanted to. And uh, they stopped doing it, I think, because the bookkeeping during the draft got horrendous because people were just... Oh, I bet. You know, it was like the NBA draft, but 100 times worse. But it was a really <laughs> interesting thing. But meanwhile, in auction leagues, we do have control over whether we want to take what would be the equivalent of first-rounders with very large dollar investments in particular sets of player stats. Is there a lesson in all of this for auction leagues? Yeah, I think there, there, there definitely uh, is in terms of you know spreading the risk or stars and scrubs. I think a lot of folks kind of default to stars and scrubs, and the the problem is you know if two of your three or four star you know however many stars you can get there, if if half of them go down or have some sort of catastrophic injury or or just performance fall off the way we've seen with some guys this year, you're in deep trouble. And, and there might not be, it depends on the league type, but there might not be the room on the wire to fix that either. So I don't know. I, th I think that, you know, any strategy can win with the right players, right? I believe it. Uh, I think Scott Pianowski says that, or maybe Joe Sheehan. Um, I don't want to take credit for that. That's definitely somebody else's, but it's true, right? So there is no one size fits all. There's no best strategy that you must employ. It's all about the players that you get. So there will be decisions made. Based off of this year, we will have a lot of hand-wringing after the season and we'll make a lot of sweeping judgments. But by and large, I think the fact that we were coming off a two-month season and then threw in the sticky band in the middle of the year and probably changed the balls throughout, we don't even know about that. It's, it's impossible to say. But all those factors probably played a bigger role in everything than we were prepared to either know because we didn't know about the sticky band or uh, uh, believe coming into the season based on the two-month season. And all in all, we should probably just assess the players 
as we see them for their talent and, and continue to have the strategies that we want to employ. I don't know that there's going to be any major sweeping changes to strategy coming off of this year that, uh, that, that are steeped in anything other than recency bias. You said something interesting that made me think of the relationship between high auction prices and first round picks. And it made me think that if you spend even a legitimate amount, say you invest $40 in, uh, say you were really lucky and spent $40 on Vladimir Guerrero. Mm-hmm. And actually, you've made it. You've turned a small profit, but it's not the same thing as taking a fir- being obliged to take a first round pick, because the variance inside the first round is not that great. And so, if you spend forty dollars on a player in an auction, it's not like you can then move on and just take your regular second round pick. You've you've depleted the amount of money you have available. So maybe instead of getting a first and a second round pick, you get the equivalent of a first and a fifth round pick because of the amount of money you invested, even if it was a legitimate investment in a guy like Guerrero or Mike Trout or one of these guys. Do you think that that also mitigates against overspending in the round at, at an auction, even if it's not an overspend by your expected value? That that is a really interesting thought exercise there about like, you know, yeah, how many how many early rounders can you actually get especially if there's certain mid-rounders that, that you you want to ensure that you get to. And um, I've always had that question with relation to, do I then try to secure some of those middle guys to see what their prices will be, to know how much I have to spend on the early rounders? So obviously auction dynamics change, and I, I'm not trying to give you know fence-sitting nebulous answers about, oh, it depends, it depends. The problem is with auctions, it does always depend, right? If there's a few, if you're in an auction where, you know, only a couple guys even touch $40, then you're going to be able to get probably a first, second, and fourth rounder by value uh, because everyone else is going to be spending you know, the lower dollars. If you're in an auction that the top guys can push upwards of 50, uh, then it's going to be a lot more difficult you know, if you're getting a $50 to Grom to even get a, a third rounder as your second best player. You might be getting a fourth or a fifth, like you said. So I think the auction dynamics, and everyone knows their league best, uh, really play a big role there, and you can kind of map out from historicals where you think you can go. You should, uh, because I, I like to still get a few cheap dollar guys. So if you budget, you know, five guys that are three dollars or less, you should still be able to get at least two high dollar guys there. But I agree that you might not be able to get the true first, second, and third round values because those prices are going to be high while still making sure that you fill out your team and it's not just pure stars and scrubs. I like to kind of live in the middle sometimes and get you know five guys that are in the $20 range and, and hope that they can be the next set of $40 guys, right? Because that's where usually in those, uh, say, fifth to 10th round area, that's where the next breed of first rounders comes from. Not that either of us is really qualified to comment on it, but I'm curious what you think about the little surge we've seen in these COVID IL stints. You know, the Major League Baseball has said that 80 plus percent of the players are vaccinated, that uh, the, we, we would should expect that those rates would be coming down, but they keep popping up. Just this week, I think uh, Jordan Montgomery on your Rasball team, Garrett Cole, uh, Jazz Chisholm in Miami, Matt Barnes in Boston, although I believe he tested negative and came back. Uh, what do you make of this COVID IL situation and, and as, as far as how you're managing your team, how you're looking at free agents, 
how you're looking at geographies maybe because there mm-hmm. seems to be little clumps here and there geographically is it having any effect on how you're managing any of your teams no unfortunately i i don't know that i could really pinpoint anything that would make me want to manage differently um maybe i think part of it might be that that the players are feeling more comfortable to do things and and exposing themselves maybe a little bit more uh because sometimes it's not even that they got it it's just that they were exposed to it so they have to go through the necessary protocol. And then again, I, I would not be qualified to speak on it to a, a major degree, but the, the Delta variant is is breakthrough in that it can still get folks that that have been vaccinated because the point isn't that the vaccine is is a is a super shield. It's that if you do in fact get it, it's it's gonna make it so that it's not as bad, not as dangerous, not not as life threatening. And so even with vaccinated players, there's still a situation where they can get it or at least be exposed to it to where they have to get through the protocol. Uh, but I don't know that I necessarily see why a, a, a smoking gun reason why there's there's a few more popping up right now than there were early in the year. Maybe it is just people being a little bit more relaxed, feeling like we're getting back to normal, and then having that, uh, that reality check when they do test positive or get exposed to it where they say, oh, no, maybe I do need to be a little bit more careful here, especially during the season. So I don't put myself in a situation where I have to go on the IL. They are young fellows. They have money and they're off and traveling. So I guess, uh, yep. you know, things are going to happen that way. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the fantasy uh, podcast called The Sleeper in the Bust. And at Rotographs, you and Justin Mason have been covering the fantasy relevant deals made in deadline week. You also talked about it on the podcast. Before we get to specific players and their situations, what in your view made a deal fantasy relevant? Uh, basically something that would affect uh, leagues, you know, kind of focus the 12 team is probably the sweet spot there. Uh, looking for things that, that would affect that via playing time, whether it's a player who is relevant in those leagues getting moved or even if it's somebody being moved that then elevates players who would be viable uh, in in those in those league types. Obviously, you know every deal, most deals would probably at least have some AL or NL only relevance. But we weren't necessarily covering like Andrew Chafin to Oakland, even if he is like a decent AL only holds guy now or something. But for the most part, if it had mixed league relevance, uh, a player of mixed league relevance, or opened the door for somebody to garner mixed league relevance. That's what decided if we if we were going to go ahead and cover it, put a write-up for it. The conventional wisdom after Anthony Rizzo got traded was that it was a plus for him because of the short porch, hitting in a better lineup, those kind of things all going to help his counting stats. And he's certainly off to an excellent start with the Yankees, a couple of homers, a 13.58 OPS through his first few games. But interestingly, I thought his strikeout rate is down 10 points from his already excellent norm. I think he was around a 15% strikeout rate. He's down around five. What's your take on Anthony Rizzo? You know, the interesting thing that might shock some folks is that he actually joined a lower scoring lineup uh, with with the Yankees there. The Cubs had scored more. Now, obviously, the rest of the season, that will not be the case because the Cubs traded three superstars and the Yankees brought on two superstars, including Rizzo himself. The stadium is also markedly better. Wrigley is kind of hell on left-handed power. Um, Obviously, it hasn't necessarily stopped him throughout his career. He's had a wonderful career. But if you take Rizzo, uh, you know, reset him back to his early 20s and put him in Yankee Stadium, he's going to have a hell of a lot more homers than he did at Wrigley. So in this two-month span, it can go, you know, it can kind of go either way. We know that, the volatility of two months. But I think it's a net positive for sure. I think that lineup 
is going to play better with Gallo and Rizzo there. And of course, the stadium is just a big win. So all in all, net positive for Gallo. Or excuse me, for uh, Rizzo, but also Gallo, of course. Also Gallo, yeah. Meanwhile, what, what about the question of Luke Voigt's value? You know, I was really surprised that they got Rizzo and then it turned out that they were talking about trading Voigt. Well, that obviously did not come to fruition. So it, it takes a hit for sure. Now, one thing that they've suggested is that he could play DH and then that would make mean more outfield time for Giancarlo Stanton. But, you know, we'll kind of see on that. They don't usually seem to love playing him there. And then I guess that would put Gallo in center field, which he can handle, especially in like a two-month stint. So we're going to kind of see when Voight gets back, what's going to happen there. They're not just going to never play him, though. And also, Gallo doesn't need to come out against lefties, so there's not some sort of obvious platoon there. So I think it's going to be, you know, maybe Stanton gets a blow or even Judge to kind of protect them because they've had big injury issues. Or Gallo goes to center uh, and Voight goes to DH and Gal- uh, Stanton goes to left. And then all of a sudden you've got a... Uh, Stanton, Gallo, Judge, outfield, Rizzo at first, Boyd at DH, because he's an excellent hitter, Boyd is. So I don't think they're going to be able to sit him the entire time there. We'll see what happens when he comes back. I think they realize with the health of the guys that they have, it's more than likely to play itself out. But uh, it was surprising there that when they got Rizzo because they didn't end up trading Boyd. It feels like, to me like we can easily overstate the trade effects of park changes and so on because there are relatively few games left forcing us into small samples and that kind of thing. If we think of a spectrum from kind of marginal change at one end to hugely impactful at the other end, where should we fit in a deal like Rizzo's? Um, I would say, you know, above, above the mid-level. If we're doing it on a 1 to 10 scale, I, I think I think it's like a 6.5, 7. I agree with you with regards to, you know, uh, there's only going to be half the games and only two months of games. So we don't want to go too far in, in saying that. Plus, you can make a case that, you know, the division is much more difficult in terms of the pitching that he's going to face uh, in the ALEs versus the NL Central, although that Milwaukee uh, rotation, the Cincinnati one, pretty good st louis not so good pittsburgh pretty terrible so um you know pittsburgh's kind of the baltimore of it that's a better park too so you add up all the factors i still think it's a net positive because of not just his home park but the other parks camden rogers center fenway uh those are all parks you want to go to the trop i think is pretty neutral and they usually have pretty good pitching but i think it's still going to benefit him because of the outside factors too not just the home park because if you're talking about just the you know 35 games at Yankee Stadium. Yes, it can make an impact. He can he can go off there. Rizzo could, but we don't want to overstate that and say, oh, now he's going to jump, you know, 50 spots in the rest of season ranking. But I think all the other factors around it do make it so that it's still a pretty high high end move. Uh, and like I said, kind of like a six and a half or seven out of ten for Rizzo going to New York. You wrote about the Red Sox edition of Kyle Schwarber and said that the big loser figures to be Jaron Duran, the prospect who has struggled in his first go at Major League pitching, but you suggested there's another possibility for Schwarber. What was it and how did it work? You know, if Duran uh, kind of has this trial here while, while Schwarber's still hurt and turns it around, they could maybe look at putting Schwarber at first base. Um, you know, they traded Michael Chavis. They still have Bobby Dahlbeck, but he's just kind of an all or nothing kind of guy that they've been mostly platooning. And they've been putting Franchi Cordero at first base. 
Uh, I feel like if they can put Franchi there, then they could definitely put Schwarber there. He has never really played there. There's like a, an inning of it on his on his re- ledger uh, over at B- Baseball Reference. So I think he like stood there for an inning. Uh, remember, Joe Madden used to do some pretty interesting shifts wherein um, even Anthony Rizzo would, would ostensibly be the second baseman. So I don't, I will, I don't want to say he's played it, but I do think that he could, and he could be asked to do so. Um, he's a pretty he's a pretty decent athlete. I think he's seen as like this this big dude who is in, you know can't move or anything. But once he got hurt uh, with the with the torn ACL there, he came down. He he trimmed his body, became uh, a pretty solid outfielder, and he's got some mobility to him. Uh, and you don't even necessarily need that at first, right? We're talking usually our, our our slowest, biggest guys over there. I think Schwarber could handle first. It's not as easy as just putting them there and they're going to learn it. You know, Moneyball taught us that the Moneyball, the movie, they had a, the, a pretty funny scene in there. But also, you know, remember when Gary Sheffield went there and the ball was like hitting him in the chest and he was pretty inept at it. It's not simple, but it's certainly something that can be figured out. And I trust Schwarber's defensive capabilities that I think he can do it. So if they really wanted to keep Duran in there, if he, if he does turn it around and he has to turn it around because otherwise they'll just put Verdugo in center and Schwarber back and left. But if, if Duran gets going, then I think they could go first base for Schwarber. On the Sleeper in the Bus podcast, you and Justin Mason talked about the potential fantasy stolen base value of Starling Marte, now newly ensconced in Oakland. And indeed, Marte got four bags right away in his first four games, including three in one game. How likely do you think Marte is to get a ton of bags in Oakland? I think it looks pretty likely. He actually got his fifth on Monday night as well, Patrick. He's on fire over there. They let Josh Harrison run too. You know, he's not a burner. Josh Harrison isn't. But uh, they, they were kind of running wild on Monday with Marte Harrison, Loriano, and even Matt Chapman getting in on the action. So they were taking advantage of Blake Snell and Austin Nola, even though Snell was pitching pretty well. He, um, he, he stranded most of those runners, only giving up one run in five innings. But they were running on him. The thing of it is, you know, we kind of looked at the whole numbers of Oakland versus Miami and we're like, uh-oh, is Marte going to run? But who did Oakland have to run? Nobody. Loriano was the only guy, and he's dealing with some intermittent shin splints to where he has periods where he can run, but otherwise um, he, he, he doesn't want to run because of those shin splints. It looks like he's in a, a run period right now. Marte is far and away their best base dealer that they've had, I'd say, in the last five, six, seven years anyway, and they're not going to hold him back. He's been running wild. He has five already. So anybody that was concerned that, that his stolen bases were going to come down massively – I think that that fear has already been assuaged here in five games with five steals. Oakland's always been pretty good at the number stuff too. They, you know, they could look at a his success rate, which is pretty favorable. They're probably pretty good at assessing the opposing batteries as far as who's good at preventing stolen bases. You and Justin mm-hmm. did discuss using team total stolen base attempts as an indicator of what to expect uh, what to expect when a guy like Marte switches teams. And by that standard, it wasn't so good. Miami was running in about 7% of their stolen base opportunities. That's baseball references uh, definition. Oakland just 4%. But as you said, who did Oakland have to run? <laughs> you know, if you don't have, if all of your guys are fairly slow-footed, then you're not going to be running a lot. This is a fairly significant change that I think it behooves us to take a, a, a sharp look at. It's not that Oakland is against stolen bases. I think it's, it's that Oakland is against stolen base attempts when they don't make sense. 
Exactly. They're going to know the numbers. I think it's about a 70%, 72%, I think is the cutoff that you want to be successful for it to make uh, you know, sense for your total runs scored. And so you can look at those whole numbers, but you also have to pay attention to the personnel. And so that's why in my write-up of Marte, I said, I might shave a few off of the, the projected 12 that he had from, from Steamer. But for the most part, I was still looking at him for eight to 10. Turns out I was even light because he's, you know, already running wild there. So I definitely think that you can look at those total numbers, but make sure you're keeping an eye on the personnel that they have as well. Do they even have anybody that should be running? Because if not, I don't think that they're going to stop somebody who is adept as, as adept at speed running as Stanley Marte is. A 90% stolen base success rate this year, 27 out of 30. So it, in that, it, with a number like that, you look at it and you think it'd be kind of um, missing an opportunity not to let this guy run at every opportunity because obviously when you look at the run scoring matrices and guy at second is that much more likely to score, a guy at third is that much more likely to score, seems like a, a no-brainer to let a guy like Marte run wild if, if you let him. You guys uh, talked about and you wrote about replacement player outfielder Rafael Ortega in Chicago, and uh, you said his three-home run eruption the other day might not be totally fluky as much as some other people said. What's your take on Rafael Ortega? Yeah, you know, he did it on a Sunday, which most leagues do their, fa you know, weekly moves, do their fab moves on Sunday, which is tough because uh, that put him in the spotlight and definitely raised his price. But I think there's a little something here in terms of the fact that he's going to play and he's shown some power speed in his career. Uh, as recently as 2019, when there was a full minor, minor league season, he had 21 homers and 14 steals and 493 plate appearances. Um, even this year, you know, he wasn't doing too poorly in his little AAA stint uh, with an 818 OPS and four homers. He hadn't really run much. He was one for two. And even this year so far, he's four for nine, which is brutal. Um, you know, a, a sub 50% stolen base rate is, is absolutely terrible. But he has the six homers as well. He's a 30-year-old journeyman, to be sure. But if the Cubs are going to install him atop their lineup, which is where he's been hitting, I think Rafael Ortega has some value because I think they would even let him run a little bit, um, even despite that awful rate, because they don't really care. Uh, I think you know they, they want to win whatever they can, but it's not a big deal. They might let him try to run out of that. He's never been that bad of a base stealer. In fact, when he stole those, uh, those 14 back in 2019, it was uh, 14 for 21, which again, still is not great. I would never pretend that the 67% rate is excellent, but you're talking about a caught stealing or two away from being at that 72% threshold. He was 12 for 13 the year before that. So while he is 30, there is still a little bit of speed, but I think there's a little pop and the volume is what I really liked about Rafael Ortega. So I still put in a few bids. I didn't really raise it for the, for the three homers. So I only got him in one league because, you know, other people in other leagues were, were pushing him up, which I understand that happens when, when three homers gets hit on, on Sunday. But uh, I think Ortega can deliver just by volume alone. It looks like he might be an interesting play in on-base leagues if he can get his walk rate anywhere near what it was in the minor leagues, you know, double digits, 11 12%. In the major leagues, it's more like 6 or 7%. I mean, his on-base percentages in the minors in the 350 range is one year at 380, 375. He's at 365 this year so far, and that's mostly on hits because he's still not walking a lot, but I think there's some potential there as well. As some 
there's a thing about him being 30 years old and one of the sort of rules of monitoring prospects is some of them just get the idea a little later in their lives than others. Absolutely. I mean, we, we've, we've seen it with, with guys, um, these late, these late pickups that uh, they finally get an opportunity, the advancements in technology and studying, you know, they, they find video later, they find statistics later and maybe Ortega's just that guy right now that uh, he becomes a little something. And he, we only need him for two months. We can assess him at the end of the two months and see if there's anything there for 2022. But right now, two months, atop a lineup, I don't care that it's a bad lineup because the only good parts of that lineup are obviously at the top with Wilson Contreras, uh, Patrick Wisdom, and I, Ian Happ. I, I can't fully quit him, but I, I grant that he's been terrible this year. If he can get going a little bit, then the top of that lineup actually isn't too terrible uh, for a team that traded three superstars at the deadline. Another guy who's having a pretty decent year that might have been kind of lost in the glare is Washington's uh, uh, outfielder Yadiel Hernandez, who's batting uh, over 300. His on-base percentage was around 375, and now all of a sudden he's going to get some playing time by virtue of all the players that left Washington. Uh, how interested are you in Yadiel Hernandez? I'm kind of intrigued by him, maybe even more so than Ortega. Ortega, with the potential speed, I guess, is a little bit more appealing. But Yadier Hernandez is not some young buck. He's 33 years old. He was a, a Cuban player through most of his 20s, um, and that's why that's why he's kind of a late bloomer here. He looked like your prototypical quad A guy, which is the, the tag that we give somebody who is, uh, you know, too good for AAA, but maybe not good enough for the majors. But I'm not even sure if that's true I, because I'm not sure he's been given a real opportunity at the major league level. The, you know, the Nats aren't very good right now, but they they won the World Series as recently as two years ago, so they didn't necessarily have a spot for him. And I'll tell you what, if I, I know they had it last year and he still didn't really get it, but if they had had the DH this year. He might have been somebody that was up from day one playing in that DH spot there. But uh, he's come up. He's made the most of his opportunity with a 843 OPS, four homers and two steals in 117 plate appearances. I think Yadier Hernandez is a legit hitter. So between the two, Ortega and Hernandez, I think he is the better hitter. Ortega might have the better situation batting first um, and getting all that extra volume and having a little bit of speed. But I, I wouldn't even be surprised if Yadier Hernandez threw in another, I'd say, four steals the rest of the way. Nothing crazy, but a little a little chip in there could be nice with the power and batting average. But I like him too, and he was somebody that I was going for this weekend as well, and I got him in two spots. I grabbed Rodolfo Castro in Pittsburgh. I needed a middle infielder, and I was banking on the departure of Adam Frazier to open up some playing time for the Pirates. You said the fact that Pittsburgh called up Castro from AA should be taken in his favor. Uh, what's your thinking on Rodolfo Castro in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I, th I think that's a good pickup there. And um, Again, focusing on volume, I like somebody that's just going to be installed and get a real opportunity to play, which I believe Castro is. A lot of guys didn't make the jump this year from AA. Part of that was the COVID protocols that there were, but they saw fit to bring him all the way up. He has a little bit of an issue with, with plate discipline, but he can also make a lot of contact to kind of cover that. I, I like when guys walk, but I'm, I'm less concerned if they're not striking out. You know, um, you, Walks are not inherently great. Sometimes guys get forced into walks and they become passive. So if he's not striking out, then I like it. But there's real pop here in his bat. He's already got five homers in 41 plate appearances. I know you're not expecting him to maintain a 381 ISO, which is slugging minus average, of course. He's not going to do that. But his batting average is going to come up, too. He has a 143 BABIP right now. 
I think he could hit you 260 the rest of the way with a handful of homers playing every day. And I think if they continue to like what he's doing, then Rodolfo Castro could start to move up that Pittsburgh lineup. Of course, that's not a great lineup. And all of a sudden, if, if a young buck is playing well, I think he'll get the opportunity to move up. I wouldn't even be surprised if he was batting first at some point um, if Ben Gamble kind of relented that spot. He's kind of a 29-year-old journeyman himself. And then if Castro was batting ahead of Hayes, Reynolds, and Gregory Polanco, that would be pretty nice for his, uh, his run scored potential. And finally, uh, how do you think Liam Hendricks and newcomer Craig Kimbrell will end up sharing the saves in Chicago? Boy, that one's a tough one there um, because there, it was a bloodbath for closers at the deadline, without a doubt. And, you know, Kimbrell was one guy that you expected to be traded, but you would have expected him to be traded into a situation where he would still, where he would still close, but that is not the case. I'm thinking that there's still going to be some saves for him. If they have 15 the rest of the way, I think Justin and I landed on 10 for Hendricks, 5 for Kimbrell. And I think that, that feels about right. He's probably still too good to, to cut, Kimbrell is, but I definitely don't think uh, that he's going to be nearly as good as he used to be. All right, Paul, this has been terrific so far. Let's take a quick break for our National League and American League news, and then we'll come back in a minute or two and finish our discussion. Sounds great. Paul Sporer writes for Rotographs and appears regularly with the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, and he'll be back later in the show with part two. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Starting Pitcher's Buyer's Guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at base performance value leaders in July. In the GM's office, a story coming up has co-general manager Ray Murphy discussing making his peace with DFS. And in the Big Hurt, watch out for injuries analyst Matt Cederholm looking through the week's most significant injury stories, including Jacob deGrom, Alex Bregman, and Andrew McCutcheon. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, News updates and playing time today, roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse column. We have those injury analysis columns with Matt Cederholm's Big Hurt, and we have groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you have expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's our National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Cincinnati. Some good news for a change. Uh, outfielder Nick Castellanos, who's having a terrific year, activated from the 10-day IL. He was... Uh, 
working through a wrist injury. The team also optioned an infielder, Max Schrock, back to AAA. It's good news for Cincinnati. No no uh, other way to describe it. Yep, that, that's uh, certainly right. Uh, Castellanos' return is going to result in reduced playing time for Arista Days Aquino and Sojo Akiyama. They were playing time gainers while he was sidelined. Uh, Akiyama has shown reduced patience and increased contact this season compared to his 2020 debut, though his lack of power presents an obstacle to uh, having any real value. Aquino uh, continues to be a contact challenge power source. Castellanos was having his uh, most productive major league season before his IL stint. Coaching career best hard contact index, uh, expected batting average, line drive rate. Uh, so those are the those will be good things for Cincinnati. Uh, Max Schrock was sent back to AAA Louisville. And and Schrock has shown maybe he could have an opportunity down the line. He made some pretty good hard contact and had a base performance value, a kind of combined metric of 82, which is a little bit above average. So keep your eyes open on Max Schrock because uh, sometime down the road he might be a guy. And if you're in dynasty formats or keeper formats where you might be able to hang on to a guy as a stash, uh, Schrock might be one of those guys. Uh, moving on to San Francisco, how about this? Uh, all of a sudden they activated Brandon Belt, they activated Tommy Lastella, and it seems like there's too many guys in there for one infield. There, there are at the moment. Uh, for uh, you know, who knows how long that will that will happen in today's uh, injury kind of format? But uh, uh, is activated. Uh, we had anticipated that, so no change in playing time. Same with Belt. Uh, Lastella started was in the lineup on third base on Wednesday night, giving uh, Chris Bryant a breather. Bryant was in the outfield on Thursday night. Uh, so a crowded roster leaves us not sure where Lastella is going to play or or how often or who he's going to, to bump out, but he can play all over the infield. Uh, so good, good things going on in that regard for San Francisco. I suppose when we look at it from the fantasy perspective, having too many players, it looks like a problem because we want our players to all have full-time jobs. But I guess 80% of something is better than 100% of nothing. Absolutely. And you, you, know, you look at some of these guys, and they do have platoon splits. Chris Bryant is much better against left-handed hitters than he is against right-handed hitters, so it gives them a chance to move some guys around and get their get their best bats in the lineup on any particular night. And, you know, it's funny, but when you said Chris Bryant, I thought for one split second, I thought, why is he talking about Chris Bryant? He's in Chicago. But, of course, he's not in Chicago. He's one of the hundreds of guys, it seemed, who, who changed teams. Uh, it looked like Belt might be losing his way a little bit, Nick. Uh, he's been out since June 23rd, and a couple of other players stepped up and played well enough that you could think that maybe Belt might be in a position to lose playing time on a longer-term basis. But he had an 875 OPS through those first 170 at-bats, and he was back in the lineup, as you said. So it looks like Brandon Belt, who's having a terrific year also, a lot nice home run totals, a good batting average, He's been a fantasy contributor, and it looks like if you were worried about the possibility that Brandon Melt might, might not be a contributor down the road, it looks like he still will be, although maybe, as we say, there's going to be a little bit of a playing time loss as they rotate guys around, try to keep them fresh, and especially if they think they're lining up for the playoffs and don't have to push everybody out there every day just to get to the playoffs, they might want to try to rest guys and give everybody sort of 90% playing time instead of... You know, four guys get 95% and one guy gets 15. Yeah, they might indeed. And it's one of those things where, where Belt, is, Belt has sometimes been kind of hot and cold. He was on a great hot streak before his injury. Uh, he'll have probably a few days to get himself back into, into playing time. But if he's not hitting, 
there are plenty of other guys who can step in and take his place. So uh, it, it's uh, going to be a situation, I think, in the San Francisco infield where where you play or you're going to get a rest day coming up very shortly. Staying in San Francisco, we also had a change in their rotation. Anthony DiSclefani, who's having a terrific year. A lot of uh, sort of cast-off reclamation project pitchers having good years in San Francisco. I think there's something to that. DiSclefani was one of them, but he goes to the I.L. He goes to the I.L. and no immediate word on who's going to take his rotation spot. Uh, most likely choice would seem to be Aaron Sanchez, who's currently pitching long relief, or the recently demoted Sam Long. Uh, both of whom have had rotation turns, and we've upped their uh, projected innings at the moment to see exactly which one of them will stay in the rotation. Which one of them do we like? <laughs> Actually, both both seem to have uh, have potential. Uh, Aaron Sanchez has pitched fairly well in long relief. Uh, Sam Long looked pretty good when he first uh, when he was uh, on the roster and uh, pitched fairly well in, in various situations. So, I uh, you know, it, I I could go as a fantasy manager with either one if I needed someone in a short term, uh, in that, uh, in that situation. In San Diego, the news, not really good for Fernando Tatis. He was uh, on the shelf for the third time, I think this year with, uh, some problems in his shoulder. He keeps, uh, dislocating or, or causing a, it's not a separation, a subluxation, I think is what they call it. He dives into a base or he runs into a wall or something like that. And because it's happened before, it's more likely to happen again. The structure gets weak and now he's uh, done it again. And the worry now is that they're, they're going to just leave him uh, off the lineup for 10 days, see if uh, just rest gets it better. But the, the specter of surgery is hanging mightily low over Fernando Tatis. It is indeed. As you said, this, this is an injury that keeps recurring uh, and is the kind of injury that is likely to keep recurring. So uh, at the moment, they're trying to see if they can get him back into action very quickly this season. Uh, but uh, they're, they're beginning to get, I think, concerned about that shoulder. Uh, Season-ending season surgery is a very real uh, and immediate option if he doesn't show a lot of improvement uh, in the very, very near term. So if you're a Tatis owner, I would certainly stay tuned and be looking for... Uh, for a, a fairly permanent substitute on the uh, waiver wire for the next couple of months. And good luck finding a substitute for Fernando Tatis on the uh, waiver wire. Um, I noticed that on Saturday, Jake Cronenworth slid over to shortstop and they put Adam Frazier, who had been uh, more outfield, is back at second base where he played in Pittsburgh, Eric Hosmer at first base. So uh, BaseballHQ.com has given all three of those guys a 5% playing time bump for the time being and deducted 15% from Fernando Tatis Jr., pending what happens later. Of course, if Tatis, uh, I would say, miraculously recovers in this instance and gets back into the lineup, they'll reverse all of those playing time changes. But for now, I think we have to look at Frazier, Cronenworth, and Hosmer being the beneficiaries of really bad news in San Diego. Uh, some changes in Washington, Nick. Uh, we had a presumed closer, Wander Suero, and all of a sudden he's been sent down to the minor leagues. Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today. What's going on in the bullpen in Washington? Well, we thought that Suero might take over as the, as the or figure into the safe situation with Brad Hand and Daniel Hudson gone, but uh, Suero has not pitched well lately at 11.37 ERA over his last dozen outings. So uh, they're certainly not going to give him the closer job at that rate and uh, send him uh, back to the minors. Uh, Javi Guerra gets the call at this point. It has, has 33 career saves. Most of them accumulated a decade ago. Uh, Guerra hasn't had an XERA below 4.5 since 2014. So uh, fantasy managers should temper any expectations they have for 
for him. Uh, hard to tell what's going to what's going to happen in uh, this particular instance in the uh, in the short term. It's uh, I keep an eye on Washington if you're looking for saves and see who steps up or who who gets the chance to step up in the uh, in the closer role for Washington. In Philadelphia, also some changes as far as rotation roles, bullpen roles, and so forth. They had uh, Ranger Suarez was the closer, it looked like. Then they trade to acquire Ian Kennedy, and everything gets uh, hurled around and topsy-turvy. Yeah, it looks not, not now like they're going to move Ranger Suarez to the rotation. Uh, he's made one start since this uh, since the, this uh, happened and pitched pretty well. So uh, we cut down his save times uh, in terms of... Uh, of loss, but actually playing time gain totally since he'll be pitching more and he's in the rotation. Uh, and he could always go back into the uh, closer role if uh, Kennedy has some trouble. Uh, we uh, indicated Matt Moore was likely head of the bullpen, but and the and uh, Vincent Velasquez will probably join him there. Uh, last five starts one PQS two, one PQS one, three PQS zeros. So uh, a lot of shifting around going on in, in uh, Philadelphia at this point. Uh, Suarez looks like a if, you, if he's actually available in your league, and he may not be, like a decent pickup for the rotation for the uh, for the short term. My concern with Ranger Suarez, and I picked him up a couple of weeks ago ahead of time, thinking that he might be the closer. I was congratulating myself that he did indeed get the closer role, and then right away they traded for Ian Kennedy, which made me think right away, well, they weren't all that sure about Ranger Suarez as a closer. I'm not all that sure about Ranger Suarez as a rotation piece either. I wonder if they're going to use him in some kind of opener role where he gets maybe three, four innings and never is in a position to get wins because uh, you know his background does have a ton of innings in it. That's true. It doesn't a lot. His first start, it was three innings. Uh, gave up no no hits, no earned runs. It was a pretty good uh, good opener kind of start. But you're right. He doesn't have a great pitch count built up at this point. Uh, and that's certainly something that uh, that could happen. But uh, keep an eye on it. Uh, I looking back at the most the most pitches he's thrown in any outing were 45 uh, recently, and, and that was back in, uh, in on July the 11th. Uh, 33 innings, uh, 33 pitches in his first start. I noticed that too. And Chase Anderson also promoted from the bullpen into the rotation as they push, you mentioned Vince Velasquez and left-hander Matt Moore from the rotation into the bullpen. So uh, Philadelphia looks like they're in a position to chase for that playoff spot with DeGrom out in New York. There's a possibility that they could make up some ground on the Mets who haven't been scoring any runs. But they're scrambling, it seems to me, to try to figure out who's going to pitch when and where. I think they definitely are. Chase Anderson's first start did not go all that well. Uh, three hits, all of them home runs. So four innings pitched, three earned runs, uh, three homers. Uh, not a great first uh, first start for Chase Anderson. We like to talk about Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column. He's got another nifty one this week. Uh, the effect of pitch mix changes on how we should probably look at pitchers or how we might want to look at pitchers and make speculative bets on them. And a couple of National Leaguers on the list, including Walker Bueller in Los Angeles. Now, Walker Bueller throws a lot of pitchers, and so he started using a new changeup in June with more cutters and sliders in lieu of four seamers. Uh, only thrown 45 changeups so far, but the results have been fantastic. 20% swinging strike rate, 80% ground ball rate, and he's gained confidence in that pitch uh, it's another pitch for th hitters to have to think about. While his cutter, 16% swinging strike rate, a 52% ground ball rate, is arguably becoming his best pitch. 
Uh, Bueller has a 125 plus BPB in each of the last four seasons. Continues to push the envelope with Quinn Swiss picks mix. Uh, certainly be one of the first starters off the board in 2022, and deservedly so. Uh, and looks at this point is really kind of heading that that Los Angeles rotation uh, with uh, with uh, Trevor Bauer out. The other pitcher that I thought was interesting in the National League in Ryan's report is Cincinnati right-hander Luis Castillo. And boy, here's a guy that we were wondering at the start of the season or as we got into the season whether he was even a third-level pitcher, but he seems to have righted the ship a little bit, and maybe the pitch mix is part of that. It, it could indeed be. I mean, Ray Murphy said, said a, long, a while back that this is a warm-weather pitcher. And the ERA by month would seem to sustain that 6.29 uh, ERA in April, 8.04 in May, then 1.71 in June, 2.15 in July. And some of that success, uh, according to Ryan Bloomfield, has been a correction of some brutal early luck factors, but also he's missing more bats. 14.6 swinging strike rate in June and July compared to 13.3% swinging strike rate in April and May. And uh, keeping the ball on the ground, 57% ground ball rate in June and July. 48% April, May. Uh, he's gone for a change-up heavy approach to something more diverse. He threw all four of his pitches uh, greater than 20% of the time in July, with the slider being a particularly lethal offering, 26% swinging strike rate in July. Uh, recent skill surge and uh, varying his arsenal really bodes well for, for uh, Castillo over the next couple of months. There's an interesting pitch mix graph on the Luis Castillo. Actually, all of them have pitch mix graphs showing the change from uh, April through July. And when you look at the April ones, uh, you've got the changeup being really dominant, as you said, than the other pitches, but it's all fairly spread out. And when you move forward, all the lines are converging at one point, like he's throwing them all between 20 and 30% of the time. And I that does seem to augur well for a pitcher if he's got the confidence in and the command of four pitches. All of a sudden, I think it just has to make him a much more effective pitcher. Yeah, it does. I mean, you go back, you, you, know, you know if we've got graphs like this on Baseball HQ that the, the major league teams are looking at the same thing. And if you look back in April when he was throwing that changeup 40% of the time, what do you do as a hitter? You wait on the changeup. Uh, but right now, he's got all four pitches coming in about 20 to 30% of the time. Uh, you can't really guess what he's going to throw in any particular situation because he could throw any one of the four. So you've got to be ready for anything. And that certainly makes him a much, much more effective pitcher. One other National Leaguer that he mentioned is Logan Webb of the Giants. Logan Webb should be owned everywhere, but isn't in a lot of leagues. I was looking the other day just to see what was going on. Logan Webb has a big change in his pitch mix, but it's not, it hasn't focused on a bunch of pitches. He's using uh, certain pitches way more often and certain pitches not at all at this point, but whatever works, works, I guess. And finally, staying in the National League West, an interesting signing by the Dodgers. Uh, they, of course, they have some concerns in their rotation because of injuries and off-field antics and what have you. So they've apparently signed Cole Hamels, a blast from the past, to pitch for uh, September for a million bucks <laughs> a million bucks definitely definitely a blast for the past uh, signed for a million bucks apparently is already at the doctor's facility working out uh they're not assuming he'll be ready i think until early september but um and then i saw i saw that for each start he gets he gets a bonus so uh, i think they're getting ready in case they need him for uh, an injury for uh the playoff situation or in case uh uh, in case not everyone is available as we head into September and into the playoffs. 
I know we haven't really got any analysis prepared for Cole Hamels, but what do you think about a guy this age just kind of popping out of nowhere into a major league rotation on a really good team in the midst of a possible pennant race and playoff run? Well, you know, at least, uh, I guess at least from the Dodgers' point of view, you've got someone with a lot of experience, and I'm sure at this point they're trying to see if the coaches can get him back in playing shape, and uh, then they'll look and see what they've got. Uh, the Dodgers uh, uh, the Dodgers aren't crazy. I mean, they, they, they're, in, they're in this, and they're set up to win this thing, and so uh, they're trying to make sure they've got all the backup they need and don't have any, I think, collapse as they head into the final two months of the season. And I think the most important thing you said there, Nick, was the Dodgers aren't crazy. And in fact, they're a really well-run team. They make a lot of good decisions. They make decisions based on good, sound analysis. I don't know if Cole Hamels is going to generate a fab signing frenzy, but I certainly am going to be interested in perhaps making a bid when he comes closer to starting with Los Angeles because you mentioned the experience. It's possible that the fact that he hasn't pitched for quite a while might have helped him, you know, get his body to recover, especially his arm and and all of those tissues. The downside is, of course, that he's out of shape, out of pitching shape. He may be in fantastic general shape, but we don't know. But as you said, the Dodgers know what they're doing out there, and so that alone makes me think he might be worth looking at as his debut uh, comes a little closer. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out this week. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and co-GM and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Here for another month. We're into August, PD. I know. Two months to go, and uh, I hope that your teams are doing better than mine. Pretty much across the board, there's no way they could be doing any worse, I don't think. Uh, we start with uh, injury news from the Los Angeles Angels, and let's start with outfielder Mike Trout being transferred to the 60-day IL. They recalled outfielder Joe Adele from AAA. Jock Thompson covers the Angels for playing time today. First, how ominous do you think is the move of Trout to the 60? Seems pretty procedural for me. Um, I'm, you know, it's we've got concerns as I think we've talked about before that this injury to Trout has already lasted longer than the original estimates. So if we had already accepted that reality, then I think the uh, the sixty day move isn't that big a deal. But it's, you know, it, it also created the opportunity to, to retool the lineup a little bit. They obviously called up Brandon Marsh a couple of weeks ago, and now fellow Uber prospect Joe Adele has joined him. Yeah, I think the uh, the idea that it's a procedural thing is correct. It, it opens up a spot on the 40-man, basically. When Trout goes on the 60, then that, that spot opens up and they can they can activate somebody who wasn't on the 40 to the 40 without causing any further consternation. And we should point out that the original IL placement was in mid-May, and the 60-day is not from today. It's from all the way back right. to when it started. 100%. So uh, Trout could still be back in about two more weeks. Although I have to say, given what we've seen so far, I'm not at all sanguine about the potential that he's going to be back in two weeks or maybe at all. Right, and that's that's the distinction without a difference that I was also drawing, I guess. Uh, I am also concerned about Trout's outlook here for a quick return, but the 60-day DL didn't really cover, didn't really cover that opinion at all. 
Yeah, that's just it. And the I think the message here is just because they put him on the 60 doesn't mean his injury is any worse. It just means they had to do it because of that 40 minutes. Yeah, he's minute. already served 60 days, so it was essentially a freebie for them. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, we've been waiting a while, meanwhile, for uh, Joe Adele to return to the big leagues. How do you think he's going to reward our patients and the Angels' patients and his fantasy uh, manager's patients? I, I think... Um... We may have already seen a microcosm of it in his first couple of games. Uh, his first night up, he uh, went three for four with three RBIs and was a, you know, providing a big, big spark in the bottom of the lineup. And you know, then he came back with an over the next night. So uh, you know, that's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> such a, such such as it is with kids, right? Uh, but I I think that's kind of both the uh, you know the upside and the fear here. I mean, you know, he's super. You know, we we've talked about Adele for a long time, but he's still only twenty two years old. He you know, was hitting very well in AAA, but as I think we talked about previously, there was still a lot of swing and miss in his game, and we were concerned about how that was going to translate up to the majors. But three for four with two doubles and a stolen base on his in his first game shows what he can do when he puts bat on the ball. And you know, some nights that's going to happen, some nights that's not. Uh, if you need a spark for the last two months of the season, you know, there, there are certainly worse skill sets you can speculate on. I would think he would be a uh, popular fab target this week, especially since he got called up on a Monday. So we're going to get essentially the full week to look at him before Sunday's fab deadline. So he'll, he'll have a lot of eyes on him this week, I would think. Had an OPS over a thousand. Jock reported six homers and five bags in July, a hundred at bats or so, and seemed to shore up his strikeout to walk ratio a little bit. 28 strikeouts to nine walks is still not great, but by Adele's usual standards, it's pretty good. Yeah, that's right. It's you know, he, he clearly showed progress on some of the areas the Angels wanted him to work on. The f- flip side of that coin is, as we've talked about, sort of on a, as a running theme between, uh, you know, in our spots on here this year, it seems like the gap between AAA and the majors is just a gulf right now. You could We could tick off the guys, both hitters and pitchers, who have really struggled to make the transition to, to the uh, majors that last step up the ladder this year from, Jared Kelnick to Wander Franco's kind of holding holding his own on the pitching side. We saw Daniel Lynch get lit up and so on. You know, we've talked a, a bunch of times about how the the transition settling into the majors is uh, has been a tough leap for a lot of prospects this year. Now, this is not Adele's first cup of coffee. He was up and you know struggled mightily in 2020. So maybe the fact that he already had that baseline and has seen the uh, you know, the Bull Durham, you know, major league exploding slider kind of thing already is, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that helps him here because this is actually his second time around. But uh, remains to be seen. But, uh, you know, long term, still bullish on Joe Adele. It's really just a question of how quickly he finds his footing. I'm bullish on the long term, too. My worry would be if I had him on a roster and I don't, I would be concerned about the short run because as paradoxical as it might seem, if he, if the Angels are willing to give him a real long look here and just let him play through his troubles, his troubles could become your troubles if you have him on a fantasy roster because he could very easily go, you know, nine for his first 90 or something like that. Yeah. And they're going to keep playing him. That's kind of disastrous for anybody who has him on a roster. Of course, you can reserve him eventually. But in the meantime, let's suppose he does reasonably well. Who, who's the playing time loser here? It looks like Adam Eaton to me. Yeah, I think that's right. It's Adam Eaton, and but you know, keep in mind too that Brandon Marsh, who we mentioned earlier, is you know deep into his own nine for ninety start. So uh, you know he's probably he's probably at risk too. Uh, you know, there's 
you know, so I, I've been reading some chatter on Twitter and in our forums that uh, you know, Taylor Ward was doing better than Marsh before uh, you know, before Taylor Ward got sent down and Marsh got brought up. And I think that was pretty much that swap was about center field defense because they needed a true center fielder here. And I think there's uh, there's some thought that Trout, even when he returns, is not going to come back at the center field. So maybe Marsh has a little more rope, uh, but uh Adele's going to take it bats from Eaton for sure, maybe some from Marsh. Justin Upton is not exactly a paragon of health and has actually, you know, after a pretty uh, pretty nifty little first half or a, uh, you know, showing some signs of life later, uh, you know, in a late career surge for Justin Upton, both in terms of health and productivity, that is uh, that is tailed off. So I, I have no concerns that Adele's going to find his way into the lineup every day as you say, unless he happens to play his way out of it. But that's going to take a little while. I think Marsh might be the safest guy because I don't think Adele can play center field and they, they run out right. of options that's really quickly. Yes. And uh, I noticed that our playing time crew at BaseballHQ.com has deducted 20% from from Upton's playing time. So they, uh, like you, have a bit of concern about how much rope the Angels are going to give him, especially in a lost season where they have to look at uh, some other alternatives. Yeah, and like I said, Upton, you know, for a while was, you know, justifying an everyday lineup position. And you know, lately he hasn't, uh, you know, he's hitting 230 with 15 home runs. Like, I feel like that's the, uh, that's the, uh, you know, Central casting stat line this year is uh, you, know, <laughs> you can find a guy on on the street who you can plug into a lineup and hit two thirty with fifteen home runs. Uh, but it's been it's been worse lately. Uh, you know he's been uh, you know he's hitting he hit one thirty nine for the month of July and it's been it's really tailed off after a big after a big uh, relatively big first half. Uh, June was huge. He had three thirty eight with four home runs and then went completely in the tank. And when that happens, you know you start to have questions about whether he's healthy or whether he's just wearing down, you know, he is 33 years old and has had a litany of uh, physical problems throughout his career. So uh, remains to be seen, you know, he, at age 33, he, he's certainly sitting for Adele and Marsh seems like a given. And then on a, on any given night, whether it's Eaton or Upton in the third lineup spot or Upton DHing if Otani is pitching and not DHing or getting a breather here and there. That's probably where he gets most of his playing time at this point. I think when fantasy managers are looking at situations like this, you have to be as realistic as you can about where the team is in its development cycle. And then you look at a guy like Upton and the obvious conclusion that you have to draw is this guy's not part of the Angels' future. At age 33, with the injuries you mentioned and all that kind of uh, thing, the Angels are pretty much obliged to try to figure out what they're going to do when Upton's finished with the Angels. Uh, And I don't know his contract status, but I don't think it matters. I think at some point they're just going to have to eat it because uh, at age 34, he's not likely to have any kind of renaissance. Uh, In another major move, the Angels transferred third baseman Anthony Rendon to the 60-day IL. This one is season-ending. They also announced... Uh, hip surgery for Rendon, which came out of the blue, by the way. They never mentioned a hip up until they announced he was having surgery for it. And he's officially out for the season, they've said. So who gets Rendon's playing time? Yeah, this is uh, this one came as a surprise to me, too. And I think you and I have a bone to pick with our uh, good friend and former guy who did this job for me, Jock Thompson, because I saw him tweet the, uh, 
the Rendon news and he said, as expected. And I'm like, well, if you knew that, could you please tell the rest of us? Because <laughs> I'm sitting here holding, holding, holding Rendon on the IL on like four weeks. And, you know, if Jock knew he was having hip surgery, he was going to be out for the year. You know, I could have done fab rebates or replaced them last weekend or God knows what. So so thanks, Jock, you know, from, from all of us at HQ Radio. <laughs> Meanwhile, who gets the playing time? Yeah, but but seriously, yeah, you know, we do have to worry about who takes the job from him. And uh, it was Packy Naughton who got recalled from the uh, the roster spot in a swap with Chris Rodriguez, but that had nothing to do with Rendon. Uh, the the Rendon beneficiary is probably guys who are on the roster already. Jack Mayfield is deleted candidate uh, who's been somewhat productive. He's got five home runs and fifty eight at bats uh, over the last three weeks. But you know, like the rest of the world, his batting average is just a tick over two hundred. Uh, so that. There's some uh, there's some downside and some streakiness built in there. We may also see some uh, some Phil Gosselin filling in over on that side of the infield. So Gosselin and Mayfield are the uh, primarily Mayfield as long as he's uh, showing this little power surge are the uh, beneficiaries of uh, the vacancy at third base at Anaheim. I noticed that Jock also mentioned a minor leaguer, Michael Stefanik, who's got a pretty nice line between double and triple A this year, a 332, 407, 476 slash. That looks to me like about an 880 OPS. That's not bad, but it is the minor leagues. Uh, any likelihood we see Michael Stefanik, and would he be worth uh, tossing a coin on? I'm guessing with the uh, Jock allocated him 10% playing time for the balance of the season, which sounds to me like Jock is just tagging him as a potential September call-up. Fair enough. The Yankees made a bunch of moves. Let's work through them in order, starting with ace right-hander Garrett Cole going on the IL along with left-hander Jordan Montgomery. So there's 40% of the rotation on the IL. I think it's the COVID IL, which is a little bit different than the regular one. Uh, Chris Olson covers the Yankees for playing time today. The Yankees recalled right-hander Lewis Gill from AAA, and he looked pretty good in his debut. He did. He started on Wednesday night, and uh, I... (laughs) Saw he was airing out some uh, triple-digit fastballs and that sort of thing. If I'm uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think he made uh, uh, pitcher gifts or one or one of those with uh, you know in his major league debut, which is apparently all, for the kids these days is more important than whether you actually get the win. Uh, but no, actually, uh, you know, in, in all seriousness, uh, six innings, four hits, a walk, six strikeouts, twelve swinging strikes in six innings, an average velocity of ninety-six uh, for a guy who was just a uh, you know quote-unquote emergency call-up because the Yankees got uh, devastated by you know, the Yankee rotation got devastated by a uh, by the COVID bug that's uh, more than the Yankees could have asked for uh, looking at his call-up report uh, Gill got tagged as a uh, potential of a future number three starter with a uh, 8D rating on our prospect scale he was uh, number four on the Yankees org report uh, minor league ranking was uh, this past offseason so there's, you know, you can see why with that velocity. And I saw a news story the other day that said Garrett Cole has actually been tested and found positive for COVID. It's not like one of these, he's got symptoms, so he goes into abeyance while we figure this whole thing out. He had symptoms, they put him into the into the protocol, and he got the test, and he's positive. So that really changes the uh, calculus, I think. Yeah, that means it's going to be at least 10 days, and then if you get symptoms... I, you know, you, then you get worried that, uh, you know, so it's 10 days automatically for a positive test, as I understand it. And then, you know, the symptoms obviously could keep about longer if it's, uh, more than just the mild case. I, I, I don't have any, uh, I've not seen reports about whether Cole is vaccinated or not. Um, Montgomery, I believe is a, 
I, I, I have not seen a report that he got a positive test, so he might be less than 10 days. I'm not clear at this point. Probably by the time everyone's listening to this, the, that news will be clarified. But uh, for Gill in particular, you know, it certainly looks like he earned another turn in the rotation. And, uh, you know, the, a, ten, a, a minimum 10-day IL stint for Cole, there's at least one more rotation turn to be filled. And I think uh, Gill has staked his claim to it couple of New York media outlets I checked this morning said that Montgomery indeed has tested positive for okay. COVID, so that, that certainly seems to create even more possibilities for guys like Luis Gill and whoever else they're going to try to figure out out there. Very difficult situation for the Yankees. They're in a tough race. They're in a tough division, and to lose 40% of your, uh, of your starting rotation is not going to be something they can easily bounce back from, I don't think. No, it's interesting. And you know, from a fantasy point of view or, you know, it seems to me like it's less damaging for Montgomery. He was our, Montgomery's already 115 innings, and uh, you know, given the injury problems in the short season of 2020, he probably had an innings cap anyway. So shutting him down for 10 days to two weeks or something like that is probably not that big a deal. The Yankees want to save some bullets with him for October if they can get there. Of course, they need to ride all their ride this rotation to get there, so that's another consideration. But Montgomery was probably looking at a, a shutdown or an innings cap of some problem, some way, or some way of managing his innings. So this may be at least just pushing forward a tax that they had to pay already. But Cole, obviously, being the workhorse and every fifth day, day guy, and one of the only, you know, one of the only guys we projected back in the preseason for two hundred innings, you know, this now probably puts him in jeopardy of that. He's at a He's 130 now, and you know, may have been able to manage 70 innings in two in the last two full months. But you know, even if, even if he misses two to two to three starts here, that's going to cost him uh, and knock him down to probably the 180 to 190 range. So, uh, in terms of expected value, probably worse news for Cole than Montgomery. Meanwhile, it leaves the Yankees looks like a tie-on. Andrew Heaney, who has not looked great in the Yankees rotation thus far since coming over from the Angels, he looks like his spot might get a little more locked in in case you were worried about it. Uh, one of those guys, by the way, who the more he pitches, the more he might hurt your fantasy roster. But they also have a couple of guys sort of lingering around in the wings in Luis Severino and Corey Kluber, who are on the injured list, but we still have them projected for, you know, 3% or so of the available starters innings so that that's not nothing. Should we be looking forward to or perhaps even making preliminary rostering attempts on Severino or Corey Kluber? Severino, I believe, has re restarted his rehab uh, process. You know, He's back on a rehab assignment in the minors now and getting stretched out, but that probably still means he's a few weeks away. Uh, I haven't seen an update on Kluber recently. I, I know when he got hurt, uh, that was supposed to be an August timeline, but I, to my knowledge, he is not yet appearing in the minors, but I can't rule out the possibility that I just missed a news item there. Yeah, me too. And of course, Domingo Herman's out on the IL as well. So boy, oh boy, it, it really looks tough for the Yankees. And they did spool up a bit and their bullpen is starting to shape up. I wonder if there's opportunity considering how many runs they look likely to score with the additions of Rizzo and Gallo. If you might want to take a shot at whatever guy they seem to be willing to throw out there as a starter might be worth a bid just if you're chasing wins. Yeah, that and I think even more you're going to see, you know, not even five innings and in fly from some of these back end or replacement starters. It might be three innings and in fly and a heck of a lot of Lois Saiga and Chad Green in the middle trying to get to uh, Aroldis Chapman. So 
uh, you know, those guys and even Lucas Lutke and uh, Joe, newly acquired Joey Rodriguez, Nick Nelson, you know, any of these mid- middle relievers coming in the fourth, fifth, and sixth innings could be, you know, decent targets for wins. Like you said, as this revamped Yankees lineup seems like it just wants to hang up eight runs at night. So the, uh, they don't need to ask for that much of the pitchers, but whoever is pitching in the fourth, fifth, and sixth, it's going to be a, uh, a good target for wins. Lucas Lutke in particular is a guy I think a lot of people should be looking at. I had a bid on him this weekend in tout and uh, uh, got outbid for him, so don't expect that you're going to steal him for a zero bid or a $1 bid. I think the the news is out, and if people believe that they're going to go with these kind of opener, bulk guy type of situations where there's lots of vulture wins to be had, guys like Lutke and, and uh the Loisa guy you mentioned, these guys all of a sudden look like they might have a lot more value than you might at first glance uh, expect. And you know, Luki is less of the household name than the other guys, but boy, he's been fantastic. I mean, you know, he, I remember noted, noting he started the season very well, but he's he's more than held up. I mean, he's a 34-year-old lefty who uh, you know has, has a pitch to the major since 2015, uh, but he's got eight walks and 56 strikeouts in 50 innings. Ho-hum, that'll work. That will work, yeah. No kidding. Meanwhile, we lest we forget, uh, they also put Giovanni Urshela on the 10-day IL. He's got a hamstring problem. So what's the upshot of that injury as far as the Yankees lineup is concerned? Yeah, so the the revolving door continues around the Yankee infield, and they're, they're kind of lucky that they have uh, DJ LeMahieu who can move all over the place. So right now, I think that's this is sort of a stay of execution for Rucknado Door, who has picked up already more at bats than I thought he would ever get in the uh, with the Yankees after they scooped him up from Texas back uh, at the beginning of the season. He's kind of, uh, you know, been the beneficiary whenever an infield spot opens up here because he goes to second base and LeMahieu goes and cleans up wherever the mess is, whether it was first base before uh, Rizzo came over or previously when Urshula has been on the, on the DL. So that happens again. Odor gets another week or two at second base. Uh, but if Virtual comes back, you know, they, they love his glove and they want LeMayu at second. So Odor would get pushed back to the bench whenever, uh, whenever Urshel is ready again. In Texas, Ray, the Rangers made a whole bunch of moves, including designating outfielder David Dahl for assignment. And I can only th- imagine that people are saying it's about time. Guy was hitting uh, 210, I think, in about 200 at bats, had a couple of home runs, just a dreadful season, uh, OPS under 570. So he's gone, I guess probably permanently now. But they also claimed former Dodger DJ Peters off waivers. He's a pretty good prospect pedigree and a guy who has a lot of power a lot of p words in there uh, what are the playing time ramifications with this david Dahl assignment yeah so peter's powder power peters out as <laughs> so yeah clearly clearly the rangers move here it was to uh get Dahl out of the way to look at some guys who might actually be part of their 2022 and beyond outfield picture peters tops the list as you say uh you know, former recently, you know, even in this preseason was a top 10 prospect in the Dodger organization on our Dodger prospect list. Uh, but, you know, his, the power that he had shown previously in the minors has not come back this year. But it does appear that that may be something of a conscious decision on his part and that he's trying to rein in the strikeouts that were a huge part of this, his game. So he's essentially a skill set in transition. He's trying to make more contact. He has not yet been able to marry more contact with the power he showed before. But if, uh, you know, he'll, he'll get interesting if that ever happens again. Uh, he's only 25, so, uh, you know, there's still some time left for him to figure this out. And the Rangers are going to basically give him a chance to figure it out in the major leagues over the last two months. 
Uh, the other the other guy who's going to get into this mix is Jason Martin. Uh, he's a former pirate outfielder. He's bounced back and forth a couple of times this year already but for the Rangers up and down to AAA. Um, and he, he kind of looks like the profile of a 4A player, but he's going to uh, get a chance to st- stake out a role as well, even if it's just a, uh, a future bench role for the Rangers here. So expect to see a lot of Peters and Martin in Ranger lineups over the next two months. I thought this was also good news for the recent call-up uh, designated hitter Curtis Terry, who is off to a really slow start. I think his OPS was barely over 300, and he seemed to be riding the ship a little bit recently. I think he had a three-hit game right after I put him on my reserve list, so uh, anybody who has Curtis Terry out there can thank me for that little burst. It looks like the team might be rolling with Curtis Terry. He had a big season in AAA. We're projecting him for six homers and 20 or so RBIs the rest of the season. And his batting average isn't going to kill you either. So don't be sleeping on Curtis Terry. I think we actually bumped his playing time a bit. Uh, In Tampa, right-hander Colin McHugh had a 21-pitch bullpen session on Wednesday. No problems. And in fact, it went so well that they're not going to give him a rehab assignment and just activate him. And he could be ready to go this weekend in Baltimore. And where better could you start your <laughs> return to the major leagues then in Baltimore, I guess. Uh, they, they are putting him on a rehab assignment. It's just in AAA Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Chris Olson covers the Rays for playing time today. Uh, what does McHugh's return from what they called a fatigued arm auger for his fantasy managers? You know, I guess the, the thing I'll be watching this weekend in Baltimore, should a save op arise, is what they're going to do there. Uh, it was I, I was actually watching the Sunday night game against the Red Sox with uh, – some anticipation and it was Matt Whistler who came in for the save. Uh, you remember Diego Castillo's in Seattle now and Nick Anderson's not back yet. So we're projecting something like 12 guys for the Rays to have uh, 15% of their saves or more. Uh, Whistler got the first one. Ryan Sheriff got one middle of this week too in a uh, situation where they needed a lefty. Um, but circling back to McHugh, I think the question is going to be, especially given he had a fatigued arm, whether they put him back into that middle relief role where he'd been, been so good for a lot of two and three inning stints in the middle in the middle of the game and where he was sort of a, a nice win source for that, or if, you know, even for the short term, if they're going to limit him to one inning appearances, does that put him in the mix for the ninth inning too? For all the guys that they've shuttled through the ninth inning, McHugh hasn't really been one of them. They valued him, like I said, in that multi-inning role. He doesn't have a save yet this year. But I wouldn't be surprised if that changes in the next couple of weeks if they're uh, both managing his workload and trying to stabilize the ninth inning. I have to admit, I love watching what this team does with these kind of situations because they're consistently pretty innovative. They're consistently willing to do what they think is best without regard for the book or the normal way of doing things. They just do what they think is going to be very effective. And from that point of view, I really like watching what they do. Uh, Speaking of Baltimore, as we were, they activated infielder Richie Martin. He had been on the 60-day IL. They optioned infielder Domingo Leba to AAA. Again, something that was a long time coming. Phil Hertz covers the Orioles for playing time today. So how much playing time should Richie Martin expect and what might we expect that he'll do with it? Yeah, so uh, it seemed like a good idea for the uh, to do the Richie Martin refresher because it's been a while, right? Um, so Martin was a Rule Five pick who made the Orioles back in 2019 uh, when and actually was there. I think he ended up being their opening day shortstop and played for the first uh, month or two of the season. Uh, really, just a slap hitter with speed kind of guy. Uh, he ended up hitting 208 with six home runs and 10 steals for 280 at-bats, about 
about half a season for the Orioles that year. Then he missed all of 2020. I don't think it was, you know, the, as I remember, he actually got injured in the original spring training in March uh, and ended up being out for the, uh, the, the entire season. Uh, but he's back now, and I, you know, it seems like he's going to play on the infield for the Orioles quite a bit here, and I thought he needed to be called out here just because he does have legitimate speed. And especially at AL-only leagues, if you need to find five to eight steals for the rest of the year, Richie Martin might be someone who can get you those. So, uh, you know, he's worth paying attention to in that regard. I don't think he rises to the level of uh, mixed-level worthiness, but the, uh, you know, but the wheels alone probably make him relevant in the AL-only world. The question is how much he's going to play, and I think the trade of Freddie Galvis makes that perhaps a little more likely and a little more uh, a reason for us to be a little more confident that Martin will have some playing time. And I wonder if they made the Galvis trade knowing that Martin was on his way back. I, I think that's probably exactly what happened. In Toronto, the Jays' uh, utility-type guy, Kevin Biggio, was placed on the 10-day IL. He's got back and neck issues. That was earlier this week. Uh, the Blue Jays also activated outfielder Corey Dickerson from the 10-day IL. They got him from Miami um, four weeks or so ago, I'm going to say, before the big deadline flurry. Anyway, uh, Phil Hertz covers the Jays for playing time today. Who gets Biggio's playing time? Yeah, so it's interesting. On the infield, it's probably Santiago Espinal, who's been surprisingly productive uh, in a you know, kind of playing that utility role as well. Um, in the last month, he's got a 308 XBA, which is uh, certainly eye-catching in this day and age, and uh, 107 PX, so a little bit above average there. So there may be a little bit of help there. Uh, as you said, Biggio plays a utility role, so if they need the extra outfield, uh, if somebody needs to pick up some outfield at bats, it's probably Corey Dickerson. But, uh, you know, those outfield bats have been harder to find lately with uh, George Springer back and raking. So Springer, Teoscar Hernandez, and Randall Grichuk have been pretty much encased in the outfield in the last uh, several weeks. But if uh, if one of those guys needs a breather, uh, Dickerson is available is available as needed. But um, on the infield, it's probably Espinal who picks up a little more playing time at this point. Yeah, I can't see... Dickerson fighting his way into that outfielder. You mentioned Springer. Teoscar Hernandez is having a good year. Lourdes Gurriel seems to be coming around. They got Gritchuk out there. And as Phil Hertz put it, even if you factor in the DH, you got five guys for four spots. And, you know, you could assume that maybe everybody sits for 20% of the time. But let's face it, if you're the Jays, you're chasing a playoff possibility. And you look around and you go, hmm, who do I want to sit today? George Springer? Teoscar, maybe? Corey Dickerson? (laughs) You know, it isn't that tough of a choice. You know, even a fantasy manager facing that exact choice would probably not come down on Corey Dickerson's side too often, even counting matchups and so forth. And finally, some really unfortunate news out of Tampa. Uh... Tyler Glass now, who is off to such an excellent year, and he went on the IL. They were talking about maybe he'll figure out a way to sneak back by the playoffs. Tommy John surgery announced he's going to be out not just the rest of this year and not just all of next year, but maybe into 2023. Yeah, the best-case scenario at this point seems to be that he's ready to go on opening day 2023. And he's probably got a decent chance of that. That'll be about 18 months from the Tommy John surgery. But... Yeah, just a terrible break for the Rays, terrible break for Glasnow, terrible break for people who were getting good mileage out of Glasnow uh, in the first half this year. There was one interesting part of this that I caught on the wires the other day, and I don't know if you saw it, PD, but there were some reports that the Rays were actually dangling Glasnow at the trade deadline, knowing that he was going to 
be out for this long, but we're still considering using him as a trade chip. Um, there, in particular, there was uh, some discussion with the Cubs, I guess, about some of uh, some of their pieces, Kim, Kimbrel, I think. But um, I only find it interesting because you were saying earlier that it's fascinating to watch what the Rays do. Um, and that's something that, like, that's the kind of move that, like, we make at fantasy leagues all the time. Like, we had a dynasty league, we'll trade an injured premium keeper who's not helping us for the rest of this year for pieces to get us over the finish line this year, flag fly forever, et cetera, right? But you never see that move in the majors. I actually I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago when Corey Sneaker was out for the year suggesting that the Dodgers could actually do this and, you know, and trade him and use him as a trade chip to, uh, to further their uh, – their contending chances in, I forget what year it was, 18 or 19 when Seeger was out. But you'd never see this. But the Rays were the Rays were at least kicking the idea around, which uh, you know triggered that memory for me. And I thought it was fascinating from uh, you never know what the Rays are going to do. And, some you know, they're thinking on a different level than a lot of other people, I think. It's a good idea. It totally is. And I don't know why we'd never see it in the majors. So, you know, but it would not at all surprise me that the Rays would be the first one to talk about it, right? No, it wouldn't surprise me. And if they were the first ones to actually complete such a deal, that wouldn't surprise me either. I mean, I hope that there's some kind of rule in place in the major leagues that if you know a guy is going for Tommy John, you can't withhold that information while you're trying to pawn him off. I don't know what those rules are. And I don't know what those rules are. Here's an interesting question. What if for some reason you thought or you found out because of some insider information that Glasnow was going to do this, and in your fantasy league you made such a deal, and it later turned out that people found out that you knew something that everybody else didn't know, basically insider trading. Not that that's very likely, but how well, should we handle look, that? You know, I, now I want to call Jock and ask him if he was trading Anthony Rendon when he was the only one who knew he was going for hip surgery. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. But I mean, I mean, it, it's one of those things, you know, it's the, back when I started playing fantasy baseball, I worked for a newspaper. I had access to the wire services through our sure. newsroom computer system. And I got accused a lot of playing on the information advantage that I had. And I'll freely admit that at the time I wasn't above looking at the wire services to see what was going on, especially around draft time. But that information advantage, it seems to me, is all but vanished, unless you know somebody who's inside, you know, a, a right, front office right. guy or something like that, or a doctor, something like that. So I don't know that it's really going to be a problem, but it would be an interesting problem if the Rays had traded Glasnow and two weeks later the Cubs go, wait, what? <laughs> you know, uh, you, you told us he might be back in August. I, the way I read it was that the the Rays were being up front or that both sides were aware that it was a 2023 play for glass now. And they weren't trying to, uh, obviously the Cubs were in selling mode. They weren't interested in glass, whether glass now was going to be able to come out of the bullpen for them and, uh, it, late in the season or not. But that's a, you know, they, those, those are two different conversations though. There's the shady, uh, I'm reminded of, um, when drew Pomeranz came to Boston a couple of years ago when, uh, AJ Preller withheld his, uh, you know, his sketchy med- medicals from, uh, you know, you were talking about, I forget what the rules are, but uh, I, you know, I'm thinking back to that case from Preller in like 2017 or 2018, I guess it was 2018. And, um, you know, he sent him to Boston, but had apparently kept select medical information or images out of the central MLB injury database that is supposed to be where that information gets stored between teams for invo- involved in a trade. And Preller just kind of uh, forgot to upload the questionable MRI or something. And what happened? <laughs> they, they, they ended up... Uh, there was there was uh, some renegotiation of the trade. I think they uh, the, the Sox got some other compensation or something, or at least filed the grievance and asked for a compensation. I don't I don't recall how it turned out, but Preller got suspended. Well, 
that's something. All right, Ray, thanks very much for helping us out. Very interesting conversation as always, and we'll talk to you again next week. Never know where we end up in these half hours or so, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) See ya. Bye. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. He's coming to the plate for his second at-bat right away on Baseball HQ Radio. But just for the minute, let me remind you of what's coming up on the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It'll be next Friday, another Friday full edition, with an expert interview featuring Justin Mason from Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, and multiple podcasts, plus all the usual great stuff. That's Justin Mason next week on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul, welcome back for part two. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit more about the aftermaths of the trade but and the news that's happened since the trading deadline, focusing on the players who were left behind, as it were. Uh, starting in San Diego, the loss of Fernando Tatis, obviously devastating for his fantasy managers, including me and Raz Slam, and of course for the Padres, uh, his likely replacement. Seong Kim was sporting an OPS around 650 the last time I looked. Six homers and five bags is not nothing, but it's not Fernando Tatis, obviously. But how interested should we be in Kim? You know, I think there's still some reasons to be interested in Kim. Obviously, coming over, you never really know how players going to transition from coming over uh, from overseas. And he was quite the player over in Korea, Kim was. Uh, you know, kind of a 2020 type. Um, in, in fact, 30 homers, 23 steals back in 2020 in, in the KBO. Well, it's a big transition to come to the, the States. First off, uprooting your life and moving clear across the world is one big thing. Then you have to figure out how to hit all these pitchers here. So he hasn't hit the ground running, but he is only 25. And I think we're starting to see some growth from him. Uh, some folks have highlighted how velocity was a big issue for him. You don't see that same kind of you know steady diet of 95 to 100 mile per hour velo in Korea that you do here in the States. So he's been taking some time to get used to it. He had a key home run off of 97, uh, you know, kind of up in the zone as well, which is another struggle spot. That's one isolated instance. So you don't want to go too far on something like that, but it is, it is impactful to see that he is turning something around. And I think with an extended playing time here, we could still see some value despite the struggles with his triple slash line. There's still six homers and five steals for Kim, which kind of kind of paces out to like a, a 15 and 10 type of season. I still think that this is a guy worth picking up, giving a shot to. And, you know, if he doesn't pan out, you move on from him. But there could still be some upside here in these final two months. I wouldn't even be surprised if he played his butt off the last two months and then rejuvenated all the people who were interested in him for next year and kept his price high, unfortunately, for those of us that are hoping to sneak him cheaply. But I do want to see him find some success. So I'm intrigued. I actually went back to the well and got him in one league where I had already cut him after drafting him because he was still out there on the wire. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's all fixed and all ready to go, but an opportunity is there. And I still think there's upside with him. We mentioned the Kimbrell Hendricks situation earlier. We also have a bunch of replacements at the end of various bullpens, and I'd like to get your takes on some of them in those situations. In Washington, of course, they have uh, Brad Hand out the door. You recommended Kyle Finnegan among the various pretenders. What do you like about him? Uh, basically, that he really seems to have the job. A lot of these 
situations have turned into clusters at this point uh, where you don't really know who's going to get it. I know there was a lot of love and I, I count myself among them for, for Anthony Bender in Miami. I'm not sure he's got the job, you know, so you look at all these other jobs, Kyle Finnegan looks like the clear guy. Part of it is just the simple fact that they don't really have any other options. And part of it is the fact that he's been pitching very well of late too. So Washington isn't going to win a ton of games, but saves are saves and you can't be picky on the waiver wire. I think he is the guy. He's kind of the unchallenged uh, guy with the job right now. And that's why I think he was someone to really go hard after this past weekend. What looks like a three-way competition in Miami for what should really be only a handful of saves anyway, but Dylan Floro got the first save, coming in to get a key bases loaded third out in the eighth, nailing it down in the ninth. I think he's got a, another save since. Still got your Anthony's, Bass and Bender lurking around. Any suggestions mm -hmm. about Miami? Well, you know, I, I really thought it was going to be Bender, and maybe part of that was wish casting because I think he's the most talented arm. And, you know, one thing that Craig Mish, who's very dialed into the Marlins, has highlighted is that Mattingly doesn't really do shares. It, it's, it's a guy. He wants to have a button to press in the ninth. And based on what we're seeing early, I don't know how I'm coming away thinking it's anybody but Floro. You look at where Bender's been since the deadline. He's pitched the fifth for one out, the seventh, and then the sixth yesterday, m Monday night, for one out as well. Or excuse me, Tuesday night. Um, and... I just I, I don't think that that means that he's going to be the guy at this point. I think I got to go to Floro. I got to pivot off of where I was. And I, I love what Craig Mish uh, does there. He's always dialed into the Marlins. Uh, but I don't know that that it is Bender at this point. I think you have to go Floro. You have to read what's going on. And based on the good tidbit that that Mish does ha did have about how Mattingly does not usually share the role. I don't know how you could come out in any other way than than Floro right now. How likely is it that Alex Colomay could be in the mix for saves in Minnesota given the year he's had? I mean, his experience makes it so that he's still going, going to probably have a shot. But my goodness, Patrick, he has been brutal. And uh, he's been a home run machine, which is the last thing that you want in the ninth inning. In fact, the other guy that we would be looking at there is uh, Tyler Duffy, and he's been the exact opposite. He has not given up home runs, which is key. So I... I think Colomay, I mean, he got the save on Tuesday. He's probably going to be in the mix there. Duffy should probably be the guy, but if Colomay can string together two saves, two, three saves this week, I think it will probably be him unless he gets in trouble with those homers. So I think you can't ignore him, even though he's been rough, because he has that experience and that alone might win him the job. You mentioned that... Uh Don Mattingly is the kind of guy who wants to go with a guy, but in Minnesota, Rocco Baldelli has the reputation at least of being a bit more advanced and a bit more willing to move things around in the manner that Tampa Bay, of course, has been doing for a long time, and that's kind of his background. What do you think of the possibility that the, that Rocco Baldelli just goes hottest hand or you know direct matchups, those kind of things? I think it's a distinct possibility, and that's why, you know, I wouldn't make too much of Colomay getting the save on Tuesday and like running out and getting him. I wouldn't necessarily cut Duffy if you were looking for that. If you're in a super deep league like an AL only and you're really turning over every rock, maybe Caleb Thielbar is their lefty um, who when who when the uh, the matchups merit, he gets an opportunity there. But I, I, think it, I think it will be kind of a mix. And the problem is when you're dealing with the last place team is that how many – 
how many saves are you really fighting for? I grant that some folks just have to get every little incremental save that they can get. It can be quite a hassle. Uh, but yeah, I think I think Colum A, Duffy, and Theobar are the three that you would look at in that order right now. And if you're thinking that Taylor Rogers might be the solution when he comes back, there's been a lot of suggestion in the news that he's not going to come back or that it's something of a long shot, so you might need to think about something else there. There's a couple of uh, guys... Going out for rehab starts at this point. One of them is Miles Michaelis. How interested should fantasy managers be at the chance to roster him? You know, uh, Justin and I talked about him on the show. I think I had a little bit more interest in him than than Justin did. Because right now, I, I feel like, and, and especially based off the trade deadline, most of the stuff was hitting based in, in the deadline as far as the movers and shakers and the opportunities created. And based on that and just kind of the last few weeks, there hasn't been a ton of pitching on the wire. So I think when when you're talking about what's available, somebody like Michaelis, he's not going to get you a bunch of strikeouts. That's never been part of his game. So if that's your need, then he's not your guy. But if you're looking for some stability and some ratios, uh, I think I think Michaelis could be an opportunity here. He has pitched well uh, throughout his rehab here, and I think he's somebody that I'm going to go for. I might even jump him early and try to get him this weekend. Uh, you know, depending on what the news is you know, leading into the weekend, it might already be that, oh, he's slated to start on next Tuesday or something. And then that kind of blows up the earliness of it. But I, overall, I am interested. I think he's somebody who is pitching well. He's pitching like Michaelis does, 225 ERA, 104 whip in the minors during his rehab starts. That's 24 innings now. I think he's back. I think he's worth taking the shot on. The only only situation I wouldn't is if I was in desperate need of K's because, that again, that's just not his game. And he has 16 in the 24 innings of rehab. Also on rehab, Huascar in Atlanta, his first rehab start was a pretty much a disaster. I think he gave up eight hits, a bunch of singles and a double. Uh, it, was, it was bad. But it, the Braves seem to be okay with it. It's his first time back after a long layoff. Uh, what do you think of Huascar if you're looking for some uh, last-minute help for this season? Yeah, now that's, now that's a pr- pretty big upside play. He could be, he could be huge if healthy and ready to go. Obviously, like you said, that first outing was a disaster. Two innings, eight eight hits, six runs. He's going to need more than that. That was only at high A anyway. So it looks like this is going to be kind of a lengthy rehab. Even if he had done well, he was probably still going to touch at least double A, if not double and triple A. So you've got some time there. And the fact that he was poor, pardon me, in this outing means that people probably aren't going to be going for him aggressively this weekend. So you can kind of bide your time. If you have the luxury of of a stash spot, maybe you jump now for $2, you know, a, a very low dollar bid before he gets going on that rehab. Um, but otherwise, it is a gamble without a doubt. And it was a hand that that he broke. So, you know, I think it was his pitching hand. Otherwise, I imagine that it wouldn't have been such a long outage if it was his glove hand, even though that would still be a problem. So, I think you need to understand that uh, this is going to take some time. It's probably going to be a mid to late August sort of return, but the upside is still there, and he was pitching brilliantly before he went out. So Anoa is a a super gamble if you're really trying to – if you're in that middle of the pack and you're trying to spike something big, maybe he's the kind of stash that you go for now on the cheap before things turn around. Otherwise, um, I think you got to wait and see how the rest of this rehab goes if, if you don't really have the luxury of stashing. 
During this season, Ray Murphy and I have been joking about needing a regular segment on Edward Olivares going up and down from <laughs> the big leagues to the minors. And here he is again. He's back in Kansas City. Uh, when or should we be interested? Well, uh, if I can spoil something, he, he was going to be my jump hitter. So um, I, I know we're going to get into that later, but I I still really like this guy, Patrick. I know, and, and it is funny, you guys probably should have that segment because if he gets sent out again, though, I, I swear I'm going to be so angry with Kansas City. They just won't give this kid a chance. 25 years old. He's dominated in the minors. He's literally been up and down like five or six times. I don't even think that's an exaggeration. There's power and speed here. With Solaire traded out, he has to be the guy. I'm back in. I'm ready to go. He was picked up in a lot of leagues this week, but if he is still available, I think he's somebody that could that could achieve 10-team viability. I think there's an all-formats potential here with Oliveris um, as long as they're playing him because of the power and speed capability. So I really, really like him, and I've been super frustrated with his handling. You and Justin talked about the power potential of DJ Peters, who came to Texas from Los Angeles via waivers after the Dodgers released him. You sounded bullish on DJ Peters. What's the skinny there? Basically, just that there's a lot of power, and you never know in like a two-month sample that that how well that could get going. He's done nothing in a meager 38 plate appearance sample um, as a major leaguer. I'm not. I don't even think it's worth getting into. 38 plate appearances. So you look at his minor league numbers and power's been his calling card. Now he didn't necessarily click in, in the time that he was playing in triple A this year. We hadn't seen the power that we normally do from him, but even with that slump, you're still talking about somebody who's a 223 ISO in the minors. And you know, once you're over 200, that that's legit pop. Uh, it's a swing and miss all or nothing kind of guy. But if you're just looking for that power and you can afford the potential batting average drag, I think Peters could, uh, on a best-case scenario, hit double-digit homers the rest of the way if he gets the playing time. Right now, he's kind of locked into maybe some platooning, but if he can assert himself and show that he deserves more of a full-time burn, then I think he could be a real power source for folks, even in some mixed-league formats. What about Curtis Terry? He got called up. His uh, minor league ISO in 2021 in AAA was almost 300. What about Curtis Terry? Kind of a better Peters at this point, uh, down to the fact that, like you said, performed remarkably well in AAA this year, uh, has a better opportunity, hasn't done anything in his 30 plate appearances yet. But again, I don't want to write too hard on 30 plate appearances in the majors. As long as he's getting the opportunity right now, I think he's somebody to look at in 15-team AL-only formats. He hasn't quite played himself into the 12-team viability, but keep an eye on Curtis Terry because if that power from AAA starts to show itself at the majors, then I think you do want to go ahead and, and start putting him on some rosters. Is there room for both of these guys? There is. I, I, I believe so. I don't think that Jason Martin necessarily has to, you know, he is 26 years old or 25 years old. So, you know, that they could see maybe some, some potential with him. But if Peters asserted himself, I think he could take the role from Martin and put Martin more into the uh, relegated platoon role or or spotty role because he's not he's had a bigger major league opportunity than either of them playing parts of each of the last three seasons and he's done nothing in the 117 plate appearances to suggest that he needs to play so if Peters can take Martin's job then there would be enough room for both as it stands right now Martin and Peters are kind of platooning with Terry being the full time DH so we'll see how it breaks out I think the next couple of weeks are going to kind of decide where they're going to go for the final six weeks of the season. 
Uh, so Peters, it, it's going to be a small sample that he needs to excel. But if he can assert himself, then I think he could take over for Martin in left field. And just before we get to slumps and pumps and dumps and jumps, what do you make of Mookie Betts all of a sudden getting close to second base eligibility? I love it. Uh, I think I think it's great. And of course, with the he's on the right team for it because they're always open to flexibility. And obviously, with the pieces that they just got, you know, they've got you know their two like backup outfielders. I put backup in quotes uh, coming into the year. Chris Taylor and AJ Pollock are having brilliant seasons. Taylor was an All Star. Pollock's been incredible. They need to find room for folks, and uh, Mookie Betts is going to be, be playing second base, um, I think, with a little bit of regularity, and it totally works, and maybe they feel like that's a better place for him, too, to kind of make sure he stays healthy the rest of the season, too. Not that you're not at risk uh, anytime you're on the field, but uh, I could definitely see them continuing to put him there. I don't know that we would get to the requisite 20 that we need for next year eligibility, but I think folks would even take in-season eligibility. It could help you out so much especially if you're deep in the outfield and you throw him at second, you get that extra outfielder that you have into your lineup as well. So I love that for bets. It'd be amazing if he played like all of September there and then carried second base into next year. Could you even imagine that, Patrick? That would be crazy. Well, it would certainly change things. Second base is something of a wasteland in fantasy baseball, yeah. especially when you look ahead to next year. So Mookie Betts as a second baseman. I think he jumps, if not to the top of the table, he'd be one of the top couple. And I can't even think offhand who might be uh, higher than him at second base. Nobody. Because, I mean, I think it was Albies. Albies is having a great year. Um, I think he's probably the top guy right now. Jake Cronenworth, also fantastic. Neither of them are better than Betts, though. If, if he got it, he's definitely the top guy. And, you know, with the injuries and everything that's happened this year, and I know he's been part of the injuries, I still see Betts as a very viable number one overall pick. Wow, no kidding. I'm a little worried. I had to say when I started seeing him appearing at second base because I have him on a roster, and, uh, of course, him being out was quite a disaster for the team uh, in question. But when I th thought about moving from the outfield to second base, it just seems like a guy with a hip problem faces more difficulties as a middle infielder than he does as an outfielder. I think that's fair. Um, at least it, it makes sense, in, you know, thinking about it logically of like, oh, you know, making turns and, and, and using your hips. What I would hope is that they're putting him in because he's healthy and, and, and he's ready to go and that he's not being put at extra extra risk there because of that. I, I hear what you're saying. And like I said, it, it tracks logically when you think about it. But I, I trust that their team is putting him in, in the best situation and understanding that uh, they're not going to be putting him at extra risk there. I hope he's healthy and ready to go. I just think it'd be neat if he got second base for next year, but I, I want to make sure he's on the field no matter what. I love Mookie Betts. I think he's one of the premier players. And like I said, even even without second base eligibility, I think he's going to be in contention for that number one spot. I thought he was this year. I thought if you wanted to take Betts number one overall, I would have had no problem with that. And uh, I feel the same way right now with an early assessment of 2022 because of how mixed it is up at the top with Acuna, Tatis and DeGrom all being hurt, and those were the main number one overalls. I don't like his chances of making 20 games in September. I figure, you know, Trey Turner probably ends up playing some second when Seager comes back, and I guess we'll have to see how that all plays out. Yeah, I, I don't really think it's going to happen. I think it would it would probably take an injury elsewhere to occur, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes for sure. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper in the Bust Fantasy Baseball Podcast. And I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some slumps, dumps, pumps, and jumps. Let's start with your slump. This is a player who's struggling but worth hanging on to. You know, I've stayed committed to Dylan Carlson all year, and I'm going to continue to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm using him as a slump for the overall season. He's actually been kind of turning it on a little bit of late. I think the one thing that's disappointed me more than anything else, though, is the fact that he only has one stolen base opportunity, and he was successful with it. And I, I think it was actually very recently that he got it. But this was supposed to be a guy who was going to, you know, threaten double-digit steals and kind of live in the teens area there. So I don't know really what's happened there. But despite the fact that he's been a bit underwhelming, I think this is a rookie who, you know, he played 35 games last year, but uh, up to 104 this year. So he doesn't even have a full season of, of games under his belt. He's been league average, and that's okay. That, that's laying a foundation of, of average is good, and I'm super cool with, with kind of where he's been and everything. So I still really like Dylan Carlson. I wouldn't be surprised if he closed with a flourish. And uh, so he's, he's going to be my guy here. I don't think he's necessarily on your waiver wire, but if you still have a trade deadline that's open, I don't think he would cost you a lot. I think he could. I think he could close strong. How about a pump? This is a player who's overachieving and worth selling high. You know, I don't know if if Adelise Garcia still fits that. I'm actually going to use him for the next one. So I'm going to say Dylan Cease, and it's less about. I'm not only going to say guys with first name Dylan and the last name that starts with a C. I promise you. But uh, Dylan Carlson, Dylan Cease are my first two. Dylan Cease is less about himself and more about what I believe is going to happen to him, which I believe is he's going to have to go into the bullpen at some point, Patrick. I don't think that they can run him into the ground innings-wise as a 25-year-old who threw 58 innings last year and 73 the year before that. Um, actually, a little bit more more than 73 the year before that because you got you got to add in the minors, but it was still only 141. And a lot of teams have been talking about you know 100-plus innings over what they did last year. That would not leave him more many more left in the tank and they have a very ready-made replacement there in Michael Kopech. So I think you might want to get out from under cease right now, especially if you're in a head-to-head format with your playoffs coming up, because he's not going to be there for you. In my opinion, I think he's eventually going to get replaced probably by Kopech. So this is less about me worried on his performance and more about his role, but I would try to be careful of Dylan cease down the stretch. And a dump, an underachiever worth replacing. As I mentioned, uh, I almost included Adelise Garcia as the sell high, but I don't think that that's really viable. I would consider moving on from him in like a 10-team format, depending on what's available right now. I know he's had an excellent overall season, and he's lasted longer than I thought he would. I, I thought he would start to show the cracks much sooner. But if you look now over his last 32 games, um, he has a 208, 273, 358 line. Three homers and a steal over that time. That's a 16-6 and six pace for the full season. Um, I, I think the wheels are starting to come off. Those plate skills were always, always concerning. He's not going to lose his job. I don't think uh, I don't think DJ Peters is a threat to take his job. They're going to ride it out. They're going to let him kind of see where, the, where this season finishes. But if you look where he was at the beginning of the year and how well he was playing, that 31% strikeout rate and 5% walk rate was always a concern. He's now under a 300 OBP. I think, and I, I made this claim, and like I said, I said it was going to happen sooner than this, but I, I made a claim back in May that people would be cutting Adelise Garcia before the year is up, and that looks like it's going to be coming to fruition soon because I think he is a viable 10-team cut at this juncture. And finally, our jumps, people to target. If they're available, let's start with a jump hitter. 
It was indeed Oliveris. So I, I'm sorry I spoiled that earlier, but I, I'm going to stick with it because I really want to stress how much I like Edward Oliveris here. I just really think that with finally getting the playing time, which I believe he's going to, I, and you never know with the stupid Royals, but with Solaire gone, I think it's legit because they can still play Benintendi every day. If they really want to play Michael Taylor, they can do that. And then there's right field right there for Oliveris. So he's my guy, power speed, 25 years old. He could be a difference maker down the, down the stretch. And like I said, he could be in all formats play if this playing time is indeed locked. Andrew Benintendi, I think, uh, took a little bit of an injury earlier this week as well. Yes, correct. And so you got to be careful with that. So there's going to be the opportunities here. It's just a matter of KC doing the right thing here. And finally, a jump pitcher, a target if he's available. This is under the same idea of what I said with Dylan Cease. With regards to him losing his job for Kopech, I'm not going to recommend Kopech because I think he's already been picked up. But Christian Javier in Houston is the guy I'm going to go with. He started in the rotation earlier this year, and then they took him out for Luis Garcia. That was not an indictment of Javier. If anything, I saw it as a, a, a promotion of him in a way because they believe that he's the guy they want to have down the stretch. And they want Luis Garcia to kind of pitch the middle part of the season. And Luis Garcia has been excellent, so similar to Cease. I'm not against him from a talent standpoint, but there's just no way that they're not going to take him out of the rotation to save some innings for Luis Garcia. And Christian Javier has been in the bullpen, ready to jump back into the rotation for Garcia. I think it's an easy flip. They have not said it publicly, so I am speculating here, but I think it's a very firm speculation based in a lot of logic. And so I'm going with Christian Javier. I've already picked him up in leagues, and anywhere else that he's available, I, I will have him by like this week or next because I don't want to wait too long on this because I really do think it's going to come to fruition. That's a really interesting approach, this idea that Houston might be managing the innings of these starters in that fashion, which could create a lot of opportunities. Really interesting idea. Uh, Paul Sporer's slump was Dylan Carlson of St. Louis, his pump, Dylan Cease of the White Sox, his dump, Adelise Garcia of Texas, his jump hitter, Edward Olivares of Kansas City, and finally a jump pitcher was Christian Javier of Houston. Paul, this has been terrific. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with Paul Sporer. Patrick, thank you so much for having me on. I love the show. Listen to it all the time. People can find me on Twitter at Spore. That's S-P-O-R-E-R, as well as Twitch, twitch.tv slash Spore, where I live stream five, six nights a week. We're always playing. Even if you don't play baseball video games, come on out, hang out if you want to talk baseball, because we have tons of people in there who don't even play MLB the show. They just want to hang out for baseball. I'm the fantasy editor over at Fangraphs, uh, fantasy.fangraphs.com. I'm writing and podcasting over there five days a week. So come check it out. Baseball all the time. Take 30 seconds and explain a little bit more about this Twitch platform. So it's a video streaming platform that started um, exclusively for video games. And it, it has expanded well beyond that. I, I, I streamed my main event and uh, beat Paul Spore drafts earlier this year. Um, I play MLB The Show, which is, which is a video game for PlayStation and Xbox. I also stream Out of the Park Baseball which is a simulator, which I think Baseball HQ fans, a lot of them will probably already know the game and play it. But if not, I think the Baseball HQ public would, would love it. It's exactly what, what we like about baseball, the numbers, the team building, the analysis. And so uh, basically I come on uh, and I live stream whatever I'm, I'm doing. And like I said, it's usually MLB The Show or Out of the Park Baseball. And we just hang out. People are in the chat talking with me and we're always talking baseball. Um, Nick Pollock and I did a deadline special on Friday where we just live streamed ourselves reacting to every trade as it came in, basically like you would see on MLB Network, but just more of a uh, more of a lo-fi setup because it's it's just two 
two huge baseball nerds doing it on Twitch. So it's a video stream platform that really blew up during the pandemic as well. People doing a lot of different things on there, doing art, um, doing music, all sorts of stuff. So again, you don't have to be a video game fan to enjoy it. If you like talking baseball, it's a place that you want to be, I promise. It's twitch.tv if you want to check that out. Uh, Paul, very interesting. Thanks very much for telling us about that and all the other stuff we discussed. It's been a real treat to talk to you again, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in Phoenix in October at First Pitch Arizona. Patrick, great speaking with you. I'll see you in a few months. Paul Sporer joined us from Rotographs and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. A quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the Frequent Flyer and my extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But first I wanted to talk about First Pitch Arizona and remind you how you can get a competitive edge for 2022 and have a ton of fun doing it. It's the 26th edition of Baseball HQ's legendary fantasy baseball getaway, live and in person, October 14th through 17th, at the Sheraton Mesa Wrigleyville West, just steps away from beautiful Sloan Park. First Pitch Arizona is three full days, packed with activities like fantasy workshops, drafts and contests, seminars covering scouting, sabermetrics and strategy, my favorite, hanging around the old fire pit and talking baseball with some of the best in the business, and of course, going to those Arizona Fall League ball games, featuring some of the best and brightest rising stars from the minor leagues, and all from the best seat in the stadium. And you get to decide which seat it is. Tickets to games every day are just the beginning of your registration package. You also get free copies of Ron Chandler's 2022 Baseball Forecaster and Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analysts. You'll get those hot off the presses as soon as they're ready. A Thursday evening welcome reception where you can hobnob with the experts and your fellow attendees. There's a free Saturday lunch and hot buffet breakfast for guests at our host hotel. And all kinds of handouts, instant freebies and prizes, not to mention as many AFL foul balls as you want to run after. I'll just warn you, after you pick up the first half dozen or so, the thrill kind of wears off. You can get all the latest skinny at the First Pitch Arizona webpage. Schedules, registration info, discounts, hotel discounts. Go to the baseballhq.com slash first hyphen pitch hyphen Arizona webpage or just go to baseballhq.com's homepage and click on the huge orange logo over on the right-hand side. Previous attendees call it the best weekend of the year. We call it First Pitch Arizona. And let's see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Texas right-handed pitcher Joe Barlow is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He presents intriguing upside and an ever-changing repertoire, according to the June 24th edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com. But there's no real mystery to 25-year-old Texas Rangers right-handed reliever Joe Barlow's ever-changing success. Mystery, intrigue, repertoire, success? Already Barlow's story appears to read like a great novel. Diving in... In only his third Major League appearance after debut on June 24, 2021, Barlow relieved Dennis Santana at the bottom of the eighth at home in Arlington on Saturday, July 3rd, where he walked Kyle Seeger, the first batter he faced, on an 85-mile-per-hour slider after running the count full. Next, Ty France doubled, moving Seeger to third. 
followed by Jake Fraley hitting a routine fly to right center, scoring Seager. Solid routine vanilla run production by Seattle, closing the gap, making the score 7-3 Rangers. But more importantly, that routine fly ball out represents the only earned run allowed by Barlow through 12 games. Wow! Additionally, on August 2nd, Barlow set a club record with eight consecutive strikeouts, surpassing Neftali Feliz, Nolan Ryan, and Danny Darwin, who had seven consecutive strikeouts each. Oh, impressive! Nevertheless, turning the page on the Ian Kennedy trade at the deadline, Rangers manager Chris Woodward was quoted as saying that Texas would likely try a closer-by-committee approach for save situations. That's why 25-year-old Texas Rangers right-hander Joe Barlow, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. However, worth noting, MLB.com's Kennedy Landry quoted Woodward on August 5th, 2021 as saying, Listen, if he keeps throwing like this, I'm going to have no choice but to make him the closer. We'll see where it goes from here. Note, possible future closer alert. Digging deeper is something we'd love to do at BaseballHQ.com. Talk about stingy. Barlow has only allowed three hits and 38 batters faced in 2021. Additionally, Barlow's four-seam fastball-slider combination with occasional curve has produced an extreme ground ball rate of 53%. Notwithstanding the small sample size, only looking at the trend, Barlow's 53% ground ball rate and 39% strikeout percentage suggests an ERA about half a run lower than other pitchers with normalized rates, according to the tools and analytics available to you at BaseballHQ.com. Yet despite the lack of fly balls, 10.5% in 2021, perhaps infrequent flyers, Possible future Texas Rangers closer, Joe Barlow, is still our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I'd like to talk about the dog days. I was listening to a ball game the other evening when one of the broadcasters mentioned the dog days of summer, where the schedule most feels like a long slog towards the excitement of September's pennant races. Although pennant races have been greatly diminished with all the extra playoff rounds, the announcer then said the muggy hot weather is why offensive performance suffers during the dog days. Now before we get to that, a brief digression to discuss the dog days themselves. They run from early July through mid-August, the hottest part of summer in the Northern Hemisphere. According to my diligent internet research, and by diligent I mean almost one full minute, the dog days are named for Sirius, the dog star, not the satellite radio operation. Our hottest weather comes at the same time as Sirius's heliacal rising. Heliacal means at sunrise. Sirius's actual name is Alpha Canis Majoris, the brightest star in the constellation Canis Majoris, the greater dog. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky, not counting our own sun. Back in the day, the ancients thought that because the rise of Sirius came right at the same time as the hot weather, the star was somehow causing the hot weather. Dumb ancients. We modern people figured out that that was false logic. Post hoc ergo propter hoc in plain English. The name Sirius itself comes from the word for scorching in ancient Greek. Those snooty ancients had a different word for everything. 
In baseball, the conventional wisdom, as propounded by broadcasters, has been that performance suffers through the dog days. As the weather gets hotter and more muggy, the travel starts to wear players down, and the end of the long season is still not really in sight. Well, any time I'm confronted with conventional wisdom, especially when it comes from conventional baseball broadcasters, my reaction is to be suspicious. So I checked. I looked through the last three seasons of month-by-month totals, and sure enough, there's nothing doggy about the dog days. Quite the opposite, in fact. I checked several measures of offensive performance, runs, hits, doubles, triples, homers, and stolen bases per 162 games, and batting average on base percentage, slugging, and OPS from 2017 through 2019, the last three years we have of full seasons. If you want the numerical details, I'll post a chart on the BaseballHQ.com story announcing the release of this podcast. But safe to say the pattern was the same across the board, in individual seasons and in aggregate. Stolen bases, very steady month to month, but all the other measures of offensive output increased steadily from the start of the season and actually peaked in July, the hottest month, the one with the most dog days, and the best offensive output. Offense dipped just very slightly in August. The real offensive collapse is in September, by far the lowest month in those metrics. September is also the month when the constellation Cygnus assumes a prominent position in the northern sky. Cygnus comes from the Latin word for swan, so sometime in the future I'll expect to hear a baseball broadcaster tell us the September decline in production is the swan day's swoon. Kinda has a ring to it. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 6th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 38 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul is an excellent fantasy baseball analyst and writer, a terrific podcast host, and a great interview guest, as I'm sure you heard. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums, and remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition our expert interview featuring Justin Mason from Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, and multiple podcasts. Plus, we'll have all the other usual great stuff. That's Justin Mason next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll see you next Friday. Don't forget to check out Beat the Shift. I'm appearing on it this week, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.